darkness plays tricks on you down here. The red light of the torch barely lit the surroundings, and in the cold blackness pressing in beyond, it was easy to imagine you could glimpse things moving. Not the bats, nestling high up in the cave roofs in their thousands, but silent, looming creatures waiting patiently in the dark to get you. Canucci shivered and was cross with himself for feeling afraid. He must have made a hundred trips beneath the volcano, and all he'd ever encountered were the bats, their slimy filth on the floor and Finn's precious fungus, which grew in it. But then the caves and tunnels stretched on for kilometres, and so far they'd only farmed a few hundred metres west and barely touched the eastern network. Now, with the early tests showing good results, they were excavating deeper and deeper. Come on, Canucci, get a move on. Adiel's voice made him jump. He turned to look at her. She was short and sparky, with hair in dreadlocks, and a smile that was warm like a child's. Sorry, he said. I was just... just... It's okay. This place gives me the creeps, too. She patted him lightly on the shoulder. Let's just get on to the new chambers and check how the shrooms have taken. Canucci nodded. Soon he was leading the way into one of the connecting tunnels. The air was stale and cold, and Canucci longed to be back in the scorching African sunlight above ground. This is the first of the new chambers. Canucci stood aside to let Adiel through. The narrow opening was between two boulders. She, of course, slipped gracefully into the cave without touching the sides. Canucci sucked in his paunch and squeezed after her with embarrassing difficulty. Why does Finn insist on following this line of research? Adiel murmured, shining her data get on the large, fleshy arrowheads. The data get beeped to signal its survey was complete. He's obsessed. What's that? Canucci's torch beam had caught on something. It's sparkling. He crossed closer to see a nugget of metal just lying in the middle of the walkway. Looks like gold. It can't be real gold, she said. Canucci stood to pick up the nugget for a closer look, and it flipped and rolled closer, as if propelled by some invisible force. Astounded, he snatched his hand away, but he wasn't fast enough. The glowing blob somehow stretched, darted forwards like a snake, touched his fingertips, sucked at them. Help me, he shouted trying to shake the nugget free. But it was clinging on, beginning to distort and flow over his fingers like thick glue. It's eating my arm! Panicking, he brushed at it with his other hand, and the glowing, flickering metal began to devour that too. No! I'll get help! Adiel told him, slipping back through the narrow gap in the boulders. He tried to follow her, but got wedged in the opening. Adiel, come back! He turned sideways, tried to squeeze through, but now his red-gold arms were rising from his sides of their own accord, anchoring him against the rock. Through the gap he could see Adiel fleeing away from him, down the sinuous passage. Only his screams followed her. 
Doctor Who, The Art of Destruction, by Steve Cole, read by Don Warrington. Engines rasping like a giant's dying breaths, the TARDIS forced itself into existence in the middle of the crop field. Finally, there it stood, improbable and serene under the baking sun, an old-fashioned police box like a big blue blot on reality. Its owner sprang from the box with the grace of a gangly gazelle, eyes wide and dark, brown hair bouncing over his brow. He puffed out his cheeks, Flaming hot, isn't it? Sawn in the Sahara sort of hot. Rose Tyler smoothed down her light blue T-shirt so that it covered the waistline of her short denim skirt. Where are we this time? Not sure, the doctor admitted. Lots of weird alien static about when we dropped out of space-time. Clogged the sensors. So this is a planet that sees a lot of space traffic, then? She stepped out and looked round at the rows of towering crops. Seems quiet enough. These plants are weird, though. Kind of like fat corn. Sort of. The doctor agreed, taking hold of a fleshy leaf and tearing it. A gloopy liquid oozed out. Allo, allo, or rather, allo barbadensis. Allo, Vera. Don't call me Vera. Ha, ha. Good old allo, Vera. Great for sunburn. He glanced reproachfully at the blinding sun smeared some of the ooze on the back of his neck, and set off along the nearest line of crops. So, high-yield corn that also produces aloe vera. What does that tell you? Rose hurried along after him. That this planet sells magic seeds? That here be humans, probably future humans. Could be a colony. Don't know, though. He stopped and jumped up and down on the dry soil. Feels like Earth. Earth-ish, anyway. But what about the alien pollution stuff? Rose asked. Seems to me... Don't move, snapped a low, warning voice close by. As I was saying... The doctor held obligingly still as gun barrels pushed out from both sides of the foliage. Seems to me we're in something nasty and smelly, but probably very good for the crops here. Rose had half expected alien nasties to reveal themselves holding the high-tech rifles, so it was with relief that she saw they were very definitely human. Two black men. One was in his thirties, the other was around her age and good-looking. How did you two get in here? asked the older man. The doctor nodded cheerily to the plants waving around them. We often just crop up. Basel? Do you recognize them? The younger man sounded defensive. Why should I? You spent enough time at the aid camps. The doctor cocked his head to one side. Why should you think we come from the aid camps, Mr. Chief Overseer, name Solomon Nabar? He eyed the doctor mistrustfully. You speak Arabic? He gave Rose a wily smile. Of course we do, or rather the TARDIS does, she thought. The ship was telepathic. It got inside your head and translated any language. Now, 
you were saying about the aid camps. Oh, come on, man. This is Chad. Chad? How cool is that? How hot, I mean. We're in Africa, Rose. And don't get me wrong, but from the color of your skin and speaking the language, you've got to be one of three things. Aid worker, journal, or activist. Intelligent reasoning. Like it. The doctor grinned. Completely wrong, though. We're travelers, that's all. I'm the doctor, and this is Rose. Rose was busy angling her head to check out Basel's watch. It obligingly told her it was 1647 on the 11th of April, 2118. She felt a familiar tingle of disbelief. To these blokes, her time was as dim and distant as the Victorians were to her. She wondered at all the things that must have changed since her own day. But as the sound of screaming tore through the sweltering afternoon, she realized that some things would always stay the same. Basel's head jerked sideways towards the screams. Sounds like Adiel. Or like RQ, Rose said. As they broke the cover of the crop field, Rose caught her first proper look at her surroundings. A huge mountain loomed like a thick shadow against the pristine blue of the sky. A futuristic building hugged the ground beneath it, all metal frames and dark windows. A short black woman was running frantically to meet them, some Star Trek tricorder-style gadget in her hand. Kanuchi, she panted. We found some weird gold stuff, and it... She buried her face in Basel's T-shirt. It ate him! This sounds right up our street, roared the doctor with embarrassing enthusiasm. Adiel didn't even seem to notice. He's stuck in the chamber, couldn't get out. Rose, help Basel look after Adiel, the doctor instructed. Just quickly. She took hold of his shirt collar and pulled him close towards her. It's 2118. Is that futurish enough to explain that space pollution you picked up? Nope, he simply said. Right then, Solomon, I'm afraid you're going to have to trust me. Show me the way to these tunnels. The entrance doors gave on to an access tunnel. Slowly, Solomon's eyes adjusted to the crimson glare. How far does the network stretch? The doctor asked. Several kilometers. We've only cleared a few hundred meters so far. The tubes were very fragile to the east. We are trying to shore them up, but resources are limited. What resources? Aha! The bats chittered up above as the doctor's exclamation echoed round the cave. I get it. You're farmers. This is Agricultural Technology Unit 12. Farmers farming fungus inside a volcano. Genetically modified, is it, like the crops? Solomon grunted, continuing onwards. The world needs food, and there's precious little land left in which to grow it. So you're using your agricultural technology to grow grub in the less obvious places, he considered. Yep. Under a volcano, that's not at all obvious. And if we're in Chad, we must be walking about underneath Mount Tarsus, right? Hang on. Tarsus is still active, isn't it? No eruptions for 80 years. Then aren't you overdue one? How do you think the agri-board beat them down on the land price? The doctor rounded a turn in the passage and came to a sharp halt. Standing in front of the entrance, 
arms wide open, was what looked to be a golden statue. Canucci, Solomon whispered. He started forwards, but the doctor held him back. I'll examine him. I'm the doctor, remember? He advanced warily on the statue. Though, even from this distance, I'd say he was dead. He gingerly tapped Canucci on the arm, and a dull clang rang round the tunnel. This stuff is holding him upright. Here's a funny thing, though. Didn't Adiel say she left him inside the chamber? He... he must have struggled out. Doesn't look like he was frozen mid-struggle. He squeezed through that exit and planted himself right in front of it, trying to keep whatever did this to him in there. Solomon reasoned. Yeah, he does look like he's standing guard, doesn't he? Solomon rubbed the bridge of his nose. I must tell Finn. Who's this Finn again? Director of Development in charge here. The doctor frowned. Suppose I'd better have a word with him. Come on. He stalked away. Solomon followed, aware of the sightless, glittering eyes of Kenucci on his back, trying not to imagine the last things they had seen. Adiel sat rigid on a threadbare sofa, staring into space. Bazel had prized the tricorder thing from her hands, and now she fumbled idly with the beads on her necklace, which sparkled in the dusty sunlight. Hope your friend's all right, Rose said. Bazel grunted. What did he do? Agri-technician, like Adiel. Are you an agri-technician too? Me. He spared her a brief smile. I'm a crop inspector. I report to Solomon. You inspect them? He oversees them, right? She did her best to seem impressed. So, inspecting crops, that's got to be, um, fun. His smile grew a little in size and charm. It stinks. What is this place, then? Just one more agri-unit sucking the land dry. Africa has debts it can never pay off, see? It rents out land to Europe and America for a handful of bucks so they can feed their people, while our own go on starving. Rose shifted in her seat uncomfortably. You're here, though, working for them. I need money, and this is the quickest way to earn it he said. I've got to get out, get myself a proper education, get taken seriously, make people care about what's happening. He leaned forward, warming to his topic. Used to be just cotton and coffee and stuff Africa got ripped off for. Now the big corporations are taking native plants and animals, taking their genes apart, finding cures for diseases and stuff. They get rich, Westerners get better lives, and we get next to nothing. It's known as biopiracy. Rose started at the sound of the cool, considered voice, saw a dignified-looking man in a lab coat standing in the doorway. His hair was graying, but his skin was smooth and ebony dark. However, Basel knows that although I direct the scientific research at this unit, I am just as opposed to the trend. I intend that my work will benefit the world, not only a portion of it. The man looked at Rose. My name is Edet Finn. I wasn't expecting visitors. I doubt you were expecting one of your agri-technicians to wind up gold-plated either, said the doctor, charging into the room. But these things happen. 
I'm the doctor. This is Rose from, I don't know, from the Global Farming Standards Commission, here to make a spot inspection. Finn turned in bewilderment to Overseer Solomon. Did you know about this? Canucci is dead, Director, Solomon said. Finn stared. Dead? What happened? asked Rose. That's the 24-carat question. Adiel, sweetheart, that's a lovely necklace. Where did you get it, hmm? I made it, she whispered. The doctor nodded encouragingly. Those stones are lovely. Not just stones, though, are they? I reckon they're tactites. Crystals formed as the result of a meteor impact, or something from space, anyway. The doctor looked over at Finn. Got any craters round here? No. Finn stepped forwards, disbelief boiling over into anger. But apparently I have a member of staff lying dead. Standing up, actually, while you're discussing a necklace. Hang on, said the doctor. He picked up the tricorder. Wow! A day to get. You still use these? Basel snatched it off him. It's Adiel's! In turn, Finn took it from Basel. The data on the fungus crop I came for, he said, looking at the readout. No, wait, this isn't right. Canucci thought it was gold, said Adiel. I wanted to prove he was crazy. I did a scan. Finn looked at the doctor. These readings are gibberish. The data gets faulty. Or else it's trying to break down chemical elements it's not programmed to recognize, elements that aren't the product of Earth geology. Rose shut her eyes and waited for the inevitable storm of outrage and disbelief, but the room had fallen silent. When she opened her eyes again, she saw why. A farm worker had pushed into the common room. He was holding a golden bundle in his arms. Put it down, Nadif! Solomon yelled as if the bundle was a bomb. Clearly frightened, the worker obliged. His find hit the ground with a dull clang. Everyone stared. Then Rose realized what she was looking at. It was a golden statue of a bird. That's a vulture, breathed Basel. A solid gold vulture. It's not gold, the doctor told him, and not a statue. That was a real vulture once, a living thing, enveloped in the same augmented magma. What? Finn looked at him crossly. Augmented by whom? There must be another way into that cave, the doctor reasoned. Somewhere the wildlife's using. Finn crossed to the door. We must get over there and see for ourselves. The doctor joined him in the doorway. Come on, Rose. No, Doctor, your friend stays here. The crop is at a crucial stage, and the less disruption in the growth chambers, the better. Stay with the girls, Basel, Finn called over his shoulder. Rose eyed the vulture. With the birds, you mean? That thing gives me the creeps, said Basel quietly. Me too, Rose admitted. It's still so, sort of, lifelike. It looks like any second it's going to... The bird suddenly turned its head and fixed her with molten eyes.
Then it launched itself up from the floor, flying straight for her face. Rose dived aside with a shriek of alarm. Something hard and heavy landed on top of her. It was Basel. What you doing? She gasped. Protecting you, he said. The vulture's wings whistled through the air above them. Get off me, you muppet! She hissed. We've got to get proper cover. Under the couch, said Basel. There was a loud slam as the golden creature smashed into the window. It bounced back, circled, and tried again. This time, the window shattered. The vulture whooshed outside, rising up over the baking landscape. Rose was first out from beneath the couch. Come on, let's get after it. It was stone dead one minute, and then it came back to life. The doctor's so going to want to study it. Let him catch it then. But almost immediately, Basil seemed to have second thoughts. No, you're right. We should get after it. Why the change of mind? His eyes widened. If the bird came back to life, Rose nodded. Maybe so's your mechanucci. Finn crept reverently through his growth chambers. The data get held tight in one hand. Whoops! Said the doctor behind him, slipping in guano and almost losing his balance. Be careful! Finn hissed. The fungus is highly fragile. How did you stumble onto it anyway? The bat's waste had built up here in the old lava tubes for hundreds of years. A natural fungus was growing on it. He crept on through the cavern. Fungi do not require sunlight. They feed on anything, almost anything. The doctor agreed. I am evolving in my fungus a taste for many kinds of organic matter. Finn explained. I have already re-engineered the DNA of the fungus to make it nutritious. I have enhanced its life cycle so that it grows tall and fleshy. If I can only make it hardy enough to withstand different environments, extremes of heat and cold, then it could be farmed where conventional crops never grow. The doctor concluded, "The Earth's crust is up to fifty kilometers thick in some areas," said Finn. "Imagine the potential crop yield if we were to farm one thousandth of it." He smiled to himself. Imagine how my critics will eat their words. Why? What have they been having a go about? He paused, steeled himself. The fungus is unfortunately poisonous. Ah! At least the doctor didn't laugh, as so many others had. That does sort of offset the nutritional value a bit, doesn't it? It's simply a matter of finding the right medium in which to grow the fungus. They turned the corner of the passage, and Finn almost walked into Canucci, gleaming like gold in the red haze. The doctor tapped the scan button on the data get. A few moments later, the diagnosis flashed at him: organic mineral content, composition unknown. Canucci has been affected by an alien substance. Questions are: why, how, what, and from where. Doctor. The screen on the data get had started blinking, and Finn showed him composition shifting. Suddenly, Kanuchi's stomach seemed to swell larger. The perfectly sculpted clothes stretched and deformed as the shoulders broadened, the legs extended. It was like looking at the same statue reflected in a distorting mirror. I think it's time I did a little composition checking of my own, the doctor announced. He produced a small ceramic tool from his trouser pocket. The tip glowed blue as he held it against one of the figure's slab-like fingers. 
Then, suddenly, the grotesque figure lashed out in a single savage movement. Its huge hand struck the doctor in the chest, smashing him against the rough basalt wall. Finn cried out in shock and alarm. He held totally still, waiting for any sign that Kanuchi might move again. But the figure remained immobile. Cautiously, Finn crossed to where the doctor lay in a bony heap. Are you all right? What? The doctor's eyes snapped open. It's okay, don't worry. I think I got my sample. He undid the top buttons of his shirt and peered down. Yep, I can just pick the residue out of my ribs. Finn screwed up his eyes, trying to marshal his thoughts. When he opened them again, the burnished statue was standing a meter further to the left, and the way into the chamber was clear. Solomon watched as Nadif and a handful of the perimeter guards spread out through the crop fields, hunting for more golden creatures that only scientists could explain away. While he wasn't a man of science, Solomon did know one thing. It's my fault, he murmured aloud. All my fault. And only I can do anything about it. Rose and Basel followed the vulture to the rocky side of the volcano. A porter cabin had been put up close by. Basel stacked a number of billy cans into makeshift steps, and they soon reached the roof. From there, it was a fairly challenging leap onto the rock face, but luckily, there were plenty of foot and handholds. Cautiously, they climbed up onto a shelf cut into the bare black rock. Rose could make out a hole maybe the size of a dinner plate, with little heaps of crumbled stone marking the edges. Must have vanished off down there, Rose said. Wait. Basel's whole body seemed to tense. Skylights are formed when the rock falls inwards. But there's stone chips and stuff round the outside of this one. So, whatever made this hole was inside the cave and tunneling out. Almost cheesily on cue, a blob of something like molten metal popped out of the hole. I know it's hot, said Rose, but hot enough to melt metal. The golden blob started rolling towards them. Run! They made it back down to the billy can stairway. Basel rocketed down and Rose followed as the molten blob appeared at the edge of the roof. Suddenly it flopped off the edge and landed on the baking earth, but Basel had crept behind it with one of the billy cans and now he brought it down on the golden blob, trapping it inside. Quick, get something we can stick on top of it. Rose grabbed another of the fallen canisters. She plunked it on top, then went to get more. Soon the billy can was buried and still. Basel looked at Rose. Wonder how long it'll hold that thing. Let's find the doctor, Rose said. He'll be able to sort it. The doctor stepped cautiously into the growth chamber. Finn followed him quickly inside. Oh, no, no. In the red light, the crop of fungus stood gleaming as if it was made of gold. What's happened here? This stuff has coated Kanuchi, that vulture, and now your fungus. The doctor shrugged. Maybe it's designed to target organic life. Suddenly there was a piercing shriek from above them as a bloated shape came flapping down from the rocky ceiling. Hold very still, the doctor murmured. Looks like our vultures come home to roost. 
Whatever happened to Ganucci has happened to the bird, Finn whispered. Yes, the DNA's been reordered. He glanced behind him. By that. Finn peered into the crimson shadows of the growth chamber. He saw something gleaming there, slowly pulsing with white gold light, waiting for them. The vulture hurled itself towards Finn. He took a step back, but the doctor grabbed hold of him. It's trying to herd us into that lot, he hissed. He whipped out his little ceramic wand and held it out towards the blob, which quivered. Ultrasonics agitates the molecules, and sometimes... With a deafening clap, the back of the growth chamber split open. The vulture flew backwards as if repelled by some invisible force. Then the warped figure of Kanuchi appeared. With a guttural roar, he pushed through into the chamber and ran onto the back wall. There he turned and planted himself firmly in front of the gaping split in the rock, his arms raised so he blocked the way. Interesting, the doctor jumped up. The primary purpose of this stuff has to be defensive. It's trying to protect something, and so it's converting local animal life into centuries. But what is it protecting, eh? And what set it off now if you opened up this chamber a while ago? Come on, doctor. Skin crawling, Finn turned and headed back towards the crumbling exit before something else comes to bar our way. Ignoring the problem won't make it go away, director, the doctor warned him. Something's woken up, something very old and very hostile. And what we're seeing are the first stirrings, that's all. It's going to get a whole lot worse. Solomon squeezed himself into a narrow side tunnel. The floor was uneven, coated with welled-up lava. The ceiling was festooned with evil-looking stalactites. Solomon wasn't bothered by claustrophobia, but in some of these passages it felt as if he was trapped inside an enormous instrument of torture. Perhaps because he was nearing the machine. At the end of this long, dark tunnel, he could see its magma-like glow. Why had the damn thing started glowing? Because you found it, he told himself, because you woke it up. The excavating work in the catacombs had weakened the whole area, and a crack had become a fissure. Solomon had forced a way through in the hope of finding a shortcut. Instead, he stumbled upon a secret burial chamber for... this... Solomon stared at it, a large rectangular panel in the floor, made from the same gleaming golden material as Canucci and the vulture. Weird sculpted controls lay shimmering like molten metal on its surface. His tools still littered the tunnel. Solomon picked up a shock hammer and stared at the golden panel. Time you were hidden from sight again, he murmured. Just a few hammer blasts and he could bring the roof down. Maybe then things would be better. Solomon took a deep breath and released a hammering shockwave up at the ceiling. The whole place shook. He risked bringing the roof down on his head as much as on the panel, but there was no alternative. He bit his lip and blasted again, felt his bones jump and rattle as the roof of the chamber gave way completely. Debris rained down around him. Solomon wasn't sure if it was his nerve that had broken or the spell the machine had cast over him. But suddenly he was running for dear life, praying the shockwaves wouldn't cut off his only way out. 
He was running so fast he didn't see Adiel watching him from the shadows, her fingers toying with the beads about her neck. Rose followed Basel into the entrance to the growth chambers. He took a torch from a hook on the wall and flicked on a beam of dull crimson light. Don't want to disturb the bats, he explained. There are thousands of them living up in the ceiling. Her foot knocked against something. What was that? Give me the torch. She swiped it from him and pointed the beam down. Small golden figures lay scattered over the slimy floor. Oh, God, Basil murmured. You know what I said about bats in the ceiling? Looks like they've come down in the world. Suddenly one of the little bodies started to twitch. Uh-oh. Just like the vulture, said Basil. They're coming back to life. Let's get out of here. But there are thousands of them, you said. If they start dive-bombing everything, the doctor and Finn won't stand a chance. Rose walked into the cave, but the tiny bodies lay like a thick golden drift across the floor. Doctor! she yelled. Can you hear me? Yeah, came his happy shout. I'm in here with Finn, but we're coming out. Rose saw the doctor racing for the exit. Satisfied he was okay, she fled too. The air was thick with bats snagging on her clothes, smacking into her arms and legs. She felt dizzy, disorientated. Then suddenly she felt arms about her, guiding her along. The next minute, Rose felt the heat of the sun on her bare arms and found the doctor grinning into her face. What were you doing coming in after me? Don't say anything about me being batty, she warned him. He looked wounded. Then he started to open his shirt, and she saw he was wounded. How'd you get that bruise? More interestingly, how did I get this little fella? He pulled out a small golden creature from inside his shirt. Easier to study than the vulture, and packs less of a punch than Kenuchi. Now we need to learn more and fast, before anyone or anything else leaves this world with a golden handshake. He marched up to Finn and shook the bat in his face. Shall we get on? Rose sat in the laboratory, waiting for the doctor to dazzle his audience with the results of his poking about. He was using the sonic screwdriver on the data-get, trying to get more out of it, she supposed. Frantic thumping and scratching were coming from a lead-lined box as the bat did its best to escape from captivity. Can you reverse the effect? Turn the bat back to normal? she asked. Dunno. He put down the data-get. These magma forms must secrete some substance that alters the host's DNA entirely, converting the skin into a kind of flexible metal. And when the secondary mutation kicks in... Taking that as a cue, Adiel called up the output from an X-ray scanner, pointing at the lead box. Rose shuddered at the image on the plasma screen. The bat had mutated into a hideous, bloated caricature of its former self. Gollum, announced the doctor suddenly. What? Rose frowned. The creepy thing from Lord of the Rings. No, Gollum, a living being created from clay. He was staring at the X-ray screen. A crude, primitive servant. Once brought to life by mystical incantations, it acts unthinkingly, unswervingly for its master. Adiel watched him, her eyes wide. You think that's what Ganyuchi and the animals have become? He nodded. Only remade from magma, 
not mud. And using alien technology instead of spells, Rose ventured. Question is, the doctor added, how long has this stuff been cooking up? The tectites on Adiel's necklace, legacy of that meteor, we're talking old, really old, really, 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 really old. Rose lowered her voice. But what about that space pollution? The TARDIS picked up. That's recent, isn't it? Really recent. Really, really, really. Which means there's been a spaceship in the area. The doctor grinned. Which could explain why this stuff has started reacting. What are you two talking about now? Finn demanded. We need to know why this stuff has decided to start shaping the local animal life into golems, right? said the doctor. So we need to know what's in those uncharted caves. You can't go back in there, Adiel blurted. Finn was quick to agree. We barely got out alive the last time. It's all right, keep your pants on. The doctor waggled the data get. I fiddled with the scan sensors on this. If we can insert some memory wafers and then have a drive around that volcano, we should be able to build up a clearer picture of what's sitting underneath it. Those devices are extremely expensive, Doctor, said Finn, snatching the data get and training it on Adiel. If your tampering has... He trailed off as a keen whine of power bit into the atmosphere. Incredible. Even at minimum scan, the volume of data will swamp its built-in memory, which is why we need the wafers. The doctor leaned over his shoulder. Well, well, according to this, Adiel's a little bit alien. What? Adiel stared at him. What are you talking about? I'd say it's those tectites round your neck, the doctor went on, deftly removing her necklace. Those stones weren't formed in a meteor impact. They came from the forced landing of an alien spaceship. Adiel stared at him, then ran from the room. Worried about Adiel, Rose followed her to the common room, where Bazel was waiting. But Adiel didn't sound upset, only anxious. When you went after that golden bird, I went looking for you, ended up in the East End Caves. And I'm telling you, Bazel, Solomon was there and went straight to this golden panel. He knew it was there, and then he tried to bring the roof down on it. Rose turned to go back. The doctor needs to know about this. Wait, said Adiel hurriedly. What if I imagined it? I mean, I was suffering from shock when I saw it. We don't want to delay the doctors imaging the chambers to come on a wild goose chase. The idea of taking a quick shifty and finding out more appealed to Rose. She could actually make herself useful while the doctor took care of the science bit. She gestured to the door. What are we waiting for? Let's go! Solomon swung the pickup round the bumpy dirt track that skirted the volcano. The doctor was balancing in the back, pointing his gadget at the steep slopes like it was an old film camera, laughing and shouting, Bellissimo! every few seconds. Work with me, baby. Yes, come on, you know you want to. Are you seeing inside? Solomon called to him. Imaging very nicely, Tar, the doctor informed him. Suddenly the sky lit up as if lightning was striking. The world became bleached out, bright and white. Dazzled, 
Solomon stamped on the brakes. The doctor was thrown forward onto his face. What was that? Solomon whispered. The doctor picked himself up from the dusty floor of the pickup. I don't know, he said, peering at his little screen. But it gave the volcano a fright. Solomon turned to him angrily. Could you be serious just for once? The data get picked up a massive energy surge, he said. Not only from that lightning flash effect, but from inside Mount Tarsus. Bazel was acting as Rose's guide. She followed him through a tunnel, focusing on his crimson butt bobbing in front of her. It wasn't a brilliant view, but the best available. The walls seemed to be closing in on them, distorted faces leering out from the dark rock. Suddenly, Bazel stopped. Dead end, he reported. Rose spun round, started to make her way back, and a bizarre, misshapen silhouette stole into sight around the corner of the narrow passage. The creature's head was thin and spiked like a cactus. Its neck was fat like a giant toad's, billowing out and then sucking back in. Two spindly arms stuck out on either side of the blobby body, each ending in a heavy-duty pincer like a crab's. Its many legs were thin and clacked together like a bundle of dry sticks. Rose turned and started running back down the tunnel. But it's a dead end, Bazel protested. It's a dead ass if we don't find a way through, said Rose. Come on! They pelted down the narrow passage. Soon Rose was on her knees, shuffling along as the tunnel dwindled to a crawl space. See? The roof's caved in, Bazel hissed. Then we have to dig ourselves out, said Rose. Or do you fancy letting pincer features have a go? He pushed past her and started clawing at the packed pile of rubble, panic pushing him on. Finally, a slab of stone came free, and they dived through the narrow hole. Suddenly, there was a loud, cracking noise from the crawl space. A pincer pushed through, slicing and snapping at the air. Keep looking for another way out, Rose urged Bazel. There was a way out here. Look, Bazel called miserably. But it caved in. Good. That route leads away from the volcano came a weird, high, rattling voice. I want to go deeper inside. The alien had caught up with them. Rose risked shining her torch on it. What she'd taken for cactus spines were actually eyelashes, long and bristly, which formed circles around five piggy little eyes. They were arranged like spots on a dice in the middle of the alien's bud-shaped head. It had a bulbous nose and a small slash for a mouth. Incongruously, it seemed to be wearing a dark suit. A bow tie was fastened loosely round its puffed-up neck, and shirt and jacket had four enormously flared sleeves. In contrast, the trousers it wore were skin-tight. The morass of legs reminded her of bristles on a brush. "'What are you?' she whispered. "'Who am I? Thank you very much,' the creature corrected her. I am an individual, you know. My name is Jacksonmillion Faltato. Bazel swallowed hard. So, is this your lair, then? A skanky cave like this, my lair? Faltato twittered, his legs clacking like a pile of bamboo canes toppling over. What kind of animal do you take me for? 
I come from a world of style and class. I live my life surrounded by art treasures so unutterably beautiful that your puny eyes would implode at the mere sight of them, and you assume my natural habitat to be a rancid rock hole like this? I was never so insulted, and by bipeds! The creature whooshed two pincers behind his back and hurled a pile of hardware at their feet. Here! You were trying to break through the wall before. These tools will allow you to do this. Rose's feeling of unease was growing. Why do you want to get through there? Because I have a job to do. What's on the other side of that wall? I'm tired of this. Faltato suddenly surged towards her on his clattering legs. Then the slash of his mouth opened and something splashed out, long and grey, like a wet vine. I make words with my speaking tongue, said Faltato. I take food or make points. He looked at them both meaningfully. With my hunting tongue. Do not make me show you other tongues. Rose quickly scooped up one of the tools and looked at Basel. So, knocking down walls, eh? He nodded dubiously. How hard can it be? Valtata retracted his clay-gray tongue and nodded in approval. Basel's hands felt half-broken from gripping the demolition tool so hard. They vibrated with energy, sending pulses of power into the thick, dark rock. It was coming away like parts of a scab but the picking was a slow process. He aimed the pulse tool at what the sensors assured him was the weakest point, and this time he was rewarded with a thin stream of rock dust showering down from the ceiling. Try there, Rose, he shouted. She started up her hammer and blasted at the same point. The stream of dust became a torrent, and then a huge chunk fell away from the wall, cracking and crumbling into the darkness, waiting on the other side. Now, climb up and over into that cave, Faltato shouted. Rose dropped her hammer. Why? What's in there? Go and see, said Faltato. He flicked out his tongue. I'll be right behind you. Basel swapped an uneasy look with Rose and pulled himself through the hole. Rose scrambled down beside him. Come on, she said. He wants something in here, right? If we get in first... We've got something to bargain with. What if he gets us? Basel whispered uneasily. Then, in the scarlet smear of his torch beam, he caught a gleam of gold. It's that stuff! he shouted. That stuff again! Next moment, Rose was beside him. No, she said. It's real gold, like a little chest or something. She shone her torch round and picked out a dark figure looming over them. Mazel cowered, but Rose shook her head. It's just a statue. Stay where you are and touch nothing, Faltato called to them. Suddenly, a whipcord cracked out from the hole in the rock and wrapped itself round a stalactite. It's using its tongue as a grappling hook, Rose whispered. Mazel looked at a huge canvas, smeared and scratched with freaky colours he couldn't put names to, birds and plants and abstract shapes he didn't recognise, but which somehow sent tingles jarring down his spine. How did this stuff get in here, all sealed up? It's a treasure store, 
Rose realized. Pictures, sculptures. Don't look very African, said Basel queasily. It's alien, right? Right. And if all this was hidden away inside this room, there's got to be another way in and out, yeah? And we've got to find it. The ugly cactus head of Faltato peeped into view over the edge of the demolished wall. A flex of the tongue and two little eyes were glaring at them. Soon he had pulled himself right up, swept his various legs over the side and sat there, staring at them. Don't know what you're planning to do with us, Rose told it fearlessly, but check this out. We got a demolishing grenade. She held up her empty fist like she was clutching something serious. If you don't let us go, we'll set it off. Blow all this lot to smithereens. Faltato's tongue snapped back into his mouth. I don't believe you, he said with smug satisfaction. Rose shifted her weight awkwardly. Well, you'd better. He shook his hideous head and pointed with a pincer. If you are armed, I rather think that guardian would be moving more quickly to envelop you. What? Basel caught a glimpse of rolling gold movement even as Faltato spoke. The blob's back! Rose joined him in retreating. We'll circle round it, yeah? You go that way, I'll go this. He did as she said, and swore as the blob simply split into two so it could bubble after them both. Resourceful, isn't it? Faltato observed. Rose shot him a poisonous look. You're just going to sit there watching while this thing smothers us? That was my intention all along, he admitted. Honest, I suppose, came a familiar voice from out of the dusty darkness at the rear of the chamber. Honest, but nasty. Rose's face split open into a mega grin. Doctor, where'd you spring from? Back way in through a hidden tunnel, just found it. He pointed at the speechless Faltato. Sorry if I'm jumping to conclusions, but I'm thinking light pincers here broke in from the other side, did you? Tut, tut, tut. You're lucky the whole roof hasn't caved in. Who are you? hissed Faltato. Rose gave you a big clue when she called me the doctor. Oh, sorry. He peered at the monster. Got any ears? You're gifted in the eye department, I know, but when they were handing out ears... He was front of the queue when they were handing out tongues, too, Rose told him. Calls himself Faltato, and he's controlling these magmaform things. He has to be. Has he? The doctor looked at Faltato. Are you? Controlling them? Me? Don't be absurd. I'm observing them. The doctor smiled. Big room chock full of Valnaxi art treasures, and here you are watching the guard dogs. So, you know of the Valnaxi, Faltato said darkly. Who doesn't? Avian race, gifted artists, great telepaths too. Seems they're actually connected with their own planet. Rose frowned. What, the planet had a brain or something? It had a spirit, a buzz, a passion all of its own. The doctor flung out his arms. It was their muse. It inspired them, helped them create the most amazing, beautiful, beautiful art. Their stuff goes for a bomb. But it was bombs that did for the Valnaxi. Got caught up in this really awful war, see? They held on to their planet for as long as they could. And then they were crushed, Faltato concluded. 
The winning side always writes their version of history, said the doctor. They had time to build all this. Doesn't sound like a crash race to me. Bazel frowned. What are you on about? These blobs of magma, yeah? They are sentries, just like I thought, guarding this little horde. He nodded at Faltato. You're a thief. Oh, yes. A dirty great tea leaf. You talk a lot, Faltato complained. Why have the blobs stopped? Rose hissed. The guardians recognize they're in the presence of aliens, Faltato said. They're assessing the risks we each pose and formulating a strategy of how best to deal with us. Suddenly, the blob started rolling towards the doctor with horrible speed. Doctor! yelled Rose. The blobs converged, became a super blob, and surged hungrily onwards. The doctor hurled himself to one side. Solomon! No! The super blob made no attempt to follow him, sticking to its course. A haze of green light fixed onto the super blob, making it ripple like molten gold jelly. The ground started to shake as if in sympathy. All right, kill the power, the doctor called. The green light faded and Solomon came edging nervously into view, gripping an electro-masher in both hands, a tool more often used for smashing up concrete. Did I kill that thing? Of course you didn't, snapped Faltato. But I'm grateful to you for the demonstration. What is that? Solomon swung up the masher to cover the creature on the wall. In a second, Faltato's tongue had whipped out, wrapped itself around the end of the tube, and yanked it out of Solomon's hands. The doctor glared at him. Thought I told you to stay out of sight. It's all right, man, said Bazel, rushing over to his boss's side. I'm glad to see you. Faltato sucked in his tongue like a thick string of very nasty spaghetti, pincers clicking open and closed, wrapped in concentration. Come on, any moment now. The blob fled into sudden brightness. Recovered from sonic disruption within twelve chronoticks, Faltato noted. Overall degradation of performance would suggest that these guardians have lain dormant for maybe... Two thousand years local time. He threw his head back and made a vile, spluttering, sniggering sound. Yes, he crowed. The age matches up. This is the last Vanaxi art warren, the final burial ground for all the finest treasures. Speaking of burial grounds, Rose pointed to the magma blob. It was glowing brighter, surging forwards. Out of here! The doctor snapped, grabbing Rose by the hand. She wriggled out through the narrow fissure after the doctor. So these Valnaxi, they're meant to be good with a paintbrush, yeah? That's like saying Da Vinci was okay at drawing. But why would they bury their art treasures in a volcano, let alone a volcano on another planet? Place of safety, he explained. Makes sense when there's a war on. Probably got treasures salted away in backwaters all over the galaxy. They'd reached the hole in the rock which led to the main tunnel. Look out! Rose suddenly shouted as the roof began to fall down. She grabbed him by the hand and pulled him clear as the main tunnel caved in and the opening vanished behind tons of rock. As the echoes crashed round the passageway like explosions, Rose covered her head and hoped for the best. The best actually turned out to be being knocked off her feet by what felt like a miniature earthquake 
and ending up on the ground with her head squashed between Basel's legs. She pulled herself free and found the doctor just beside her, staring urgently back down the dust-clouded passage. Through the thick, spiralling dust, maybe five metres away, dozens of tiny glowing lights were crawling sluggishly towards them like drunken fireflies. That guardian creature squeezed through the rockfall in globules. The doctor was already scrambling to his feet. Quick, before it pulls itself together. Where can we go? Basel asked. There is no way back to the agri-unit. Rose felt a chill go through her as the little points of light on the cave floor began to merge into one. Doctor, where are we going to go? The doctor pulled a small monitor screen from his pocket. Luckily, I brought my A to Z with me, guide to the whole lava tube network. It's how we found you, he nodded proudly. It's all here, you know. Points of historical interest and artistic merit, secret treasure troves from distant planets. That place we were in was one of at least three adjoining caverns chock full of Anaxi artworks. He smiled at Rose as if they were about to take a stroll in a country garden. Turns out these caves are regular Aladdin's, um, caves. The Guardian was still a few metres away, but it was pulsing now with a deep, golden light. Wherever we're going, how about we get started? Basel shouted. We'll have to take a new route. The doctor was staring at the screen. Keep cutting through the chambers until we find a way back outside. He crouched down and started feeling around the rock on the right of the passage. Better move it, doctor, whispered Basel. A rustling, chittering, scrabbling noise had started up behind them, slowly swelling in volume. Bats! Rose breathed. The doctor fiddled with the sonic screwdriver. With a thundering roar, a split zigzagged up through the dark rock. Everyone through! he cried. Come on! Solomon stared round at his surroundings in trepidation. He, Basel and the girl, had followed the doctor into another large vaulted chamber, filled with even more abstract, unfathomable objects in stone and metal. The doctor was over at the far wall, tapping the rock with his screwdriver thing, but the rush and flutter of the bats was loud and still rising. It was almost like it was inside Solomon's head. He shut his eyes, wished he could just hide somewhere, somewhere safe. "'What we going to do?' Basel shouted. Solomon opened his eyes and hoped his mouth would follow suit that wise, calming words would magically come. But the only thing coming were the bats, and when Solomon's mouth did open, it was to scream. The misshapen creatures swooped into the chamber, burning fiery bright. Rose and Basel clung to each other, then sprinted to join the doctor. Without hesitation, the bats bunched together like a heavy golden cloud over Solomon. He fell to his knees, his ears rang with their inhuman screeching as claws scraped against his eyes, wings gouged at his skin, twitching heads pushed into his mouth as dark alien thoughts scorched away his own. We've got to help him, Rose gasped, watching as Solomon flailed around beneath the seething golden mass. Five more seconds, said the doctor tersely. Basel ran to his boss. He tried to scoop up the bats, throw them clear, but every time he dragged one away, it flapped straight back to join the smothering mass. Rose pitched in, but one flapped straight into her face, and another started clawing at her hair, driving her back. She heard an ear-spitting clap as the doctor's work ripped open the rock. Then she saw the doctor charging over, sonic raised. 
He waved it like a magic wand, and suddenly the creature started falling away. Solomon burst from the golden cocoon, terrified, covered in welts and scratches, but alive. Why didn't they kill him? Rose asked. They were trying to, Basel argued. The doctor looked at Solomon almost accusingly. Or else they want him for something. Rose looked up wearily at the bats. What did you do to them, doctor? There's enough bat left in these poor little loves not to like ultra-high frequencies. Caught them by surprise. He ran over to the zigzag split he'd made in the cavern wall. But we may not be so lucky a second time, so shift. Rose helped Basel carry Solomon through to what she hoped was safety. Not a chance. The cavern was near identical in size but filled with a different type of art. Huge crystal display cases full of weird clay dishes. Those bad things will just come straight through into here, sighed Basel. Can't you use your magic stick to seal the rock back up again? It's not a magic stick, said the doctor, consulting his little screen. All it's doing is opening the inbuilt doors. The Valnaxi left mechanisms behind in the rock so they could open them up again some day. He started tapping the wall with his finger. Basel, stand sentry at the crack in the wall. Shout if you see anything we should know about. Basel nodded, slunk away. And you, Solomon, try to get your strength back, big fella. I think we're going to need it. Solomon sat down heavily, looking totally lost in this alien place. The rock face burst open with the now familiar but no less deafening crump, and the doctor and Rose choked on the thick dust. I'll tell you something that's a bit odd, said the doctor. This is the deepest safe. The priciest stuff should be here. Makes sense, right? So how come there are no guardians sealed up with them? It's quiet out there, Basel called across. Dead quiet. Why would they just give up? Rose wondered, before inspiration struck. Maybe you scared them. Or maybe they know you're not the real bad guy in this. I mean, it's not like you're really breaking in, is it? You're using the sonic as a sort of spare key to let you in. The doctor didn't sound convinced. Or maybe it's waiting. Working to some kind of plan. He peered into the soupy gloom of the next cavern. Question is, what? That's your question, said Rose. Mine is, how far do we have to go through these caves until we reach an exit? The doctor squinted at the screen. There's a proper little rabbit's warren of lava tubes the other side of this cave, leading west. Should take us out near where Canucci struck gold in the first place. And where that vulture made a hole in the wall, Rose recalled. We can't go back there, said Solomon fervently. It's the only way, the doctor told him. The vulture, though, said Rose. Why did it make that hole? Surely this smart magma snuff would want to make the place more secure, not less. I think that chamber must be something a bit special. The doctor's eyes turned stern and serious. When the systems were activated, the magma needed more guards. It had to get out there, recruiting golems for the cause, and it wanted them to be able to get into those caves. He pressed his tongue against his teeth and blew out a whistling breath. You know, this little agri-unit here might just manage to destroy the world. Valtato hauled himself along the narrow passage towards the little hole he'd made in the rock fall and finally out into the main tunnel. 
The appearance of this presumptuous doctor bothered him. Clearly he was some sort of expert agent. But for whom was he working? Well, no matter. He could be dealt with in due course. Bipeds were notoriously fragile creatures. They broke so easily. If only the same were not true of these rock formations. The tunnel network must be close to tumbling down around their ears. It had pained him to use heavy-duty construction tools under such circumstances. If he found the loan of Venus, only to crush it beneath tons of rock. Now he was certain this was the last remaining Van Axie art warrant, he simply needed to locate the security plaque, and his work here was done. But something was niggling at him. The behavior of the guardians was absolutely consistent with those he'd encountered before, while breaking warrants, except... He frowned. It was almost too consistent, as if these guardians were putting on an act for him. Picking his way over a particularly large mound of fallen rock, Faltata became aware of a dim, golden glow. There was a hole in the roof through which he could see the unfamiliar stars in their scattergun patterns, and the distant diamond of the ship hovering in orbit. But that didn't explain why his hooves were gleaming orange. Faltata looked down. He was standing on top of the security plaque, and it was buried under tons of rock. Oh, well, I've done all I can, he consoled himself, flicking his tongue out through the hole in the roof. Once he'd secured it around a stone projectile, he started to winch himself up. It was time to guide down his sponsors. Rose wondered if she would ever see daylight again. The passage was snaking on and on, endlessly, uncomfortably cramped and narrow. She, Basel, and Solomon trooped along in silence, the doctor leading the way. Hello, he said, stopping abruptly. A hole about the size of a chubby Labrador had been made in the side of the wall. What do you think made that, then? Fat mutant mouse, Rose suggested. Very helpful mouse, the doctor checked his little gadget, because this hole is exactly where we need one to be. He got down on all fours and shuffled through the gap. Basel helped Solomon, who was still in a total daze. Growth chamber, Basel remarked. The one where Adiel saw Kianucci change. God, are these things mushrooms? Rose wondered, staring in alarm at a large patch of spindly fungus. Don't eat them, the doctor warned her. Break your teeth on the gold plate for a start. What gold plate? said Basel. The doctor whirled round. Hang on he said. When I came here with Finn, these were golem mushrooms. Now they're back to normal again. He snapped one off at the stalk. The DNA of the original has reverted. Solomon seemed to stir a little at this. How can fungus do that, but people can't? Don't know. Simpler life form, maybe. The doctor shrugged. I want to check out the back of this cave. He set off cautiously, just as the growth chamber lit up like a Catherine wheel. A guardian had surged through the mutant mouse hole, glowing as if white-hot. Basel backed away alongside Rose, but Solomon just stood there. The blob rolled towards him. Everyone keep back! The doctor yelled as he ran to drag Solomon clear. 
too late. The blob elongated and squelched itself around Solomon's hand. He shrieked with pain as in a matter of seconds he was sucked into its swelling, pulsing mass. Then, just as quickly, the blob retreated back through its hole. What do we do? Basel shouted. We get after them, said the doctor already running for the hole. But as he neared it, a gleaming creature the size of a cat scuttled out on warped, knotted legs. Once this thing had been a scorpion. Now it was a nightmare monster, waving its crusty gold claws in warning, flexing its hideous golden sting high over its head. Another one was jostling to get out just behind it. Change of plan, the doctor cried. Vulture hole in the wall up there. Don't stop till you're safely through it. Basel wiped sweat from his eyes, or maybe tears. What about Solomon? The two scorpions crept out to reveal a third just behind them. Move! The doctor insisted. Basel started to scale the wall. Is there nothing we can do for Solomon? Rose said quietly. Stay alive, he said, and hope things can change. Look at them, breathed Rose. She and the doctor had made it out through the hole and joined Basel, grateful that the scorpions seemed to be staying down there to guard the place. But they were about the only ones. They stood together, staring out over the grounds of the agri unit. From here, high up in the foothills, Rose could see that all golems, great and small, had gathered together. The bats smothered the crags and slopes of the foothills. Men and birds and rangy dogs, all gleaming gold, waited in silence. They're in formation, the doctor realized. That's why the golem bats didn't follow us through the caves. Why they only left a skeleton guard for us. They can sense it. Sense what? Rose asked. Something's coming. Something they stand a chance of beating only if they all work together. Hey! What the hell is that? Bazel was pointing to a glowing blue light higher up in the crags. The doctor stared. Suborbital landing beacon, by the look of it. Thought so, said Rose Deadpan. What does it do? It guides down spaceships. The doctor was already setting off towards it. That's what the golems are waiting for. Trouble is coming down from the sky. Big trouble. Trouble, Doctor? Valtato came clattering over the lip of the crag. You don't know the meaning of the word. So what are you doing? The doctor inquired. Bringing down your getaway vehicle? Ready to stash the loot? As if you're not after the treasures yourself, Valtato retorted. He's not, said Rose. Why else would you be right here right now, unless you've been following our progress from Warren to Warren? Valtato sneered. Each Valnaxi art warrant contains coded directions to find the next, and I've decrypted those pointing the way to the final warrant correctly. But you've opened a proper little Pandora's box, haven't you? The doctor stabbed a finger down at the gathered golems. The Valnaxi defenses have been triggered. People have died. Animals have... Oh, don't be foolish! The creature gave a theatrical shrug. I hardly designed the defense mechanism, did I? Anyway, there'll be a lot more dead by the time my sponsors are finished here. Sponsors? The doctor pulled out the sonic screwdriver and wielded it like a weapon. Who 
Who's in that spaceship? You'll see. Faltato slapped out his tongue and lashed the sonic from the doctor's hand. They want to meet you, I'm sure. Give that back. They take a dim view of tomb robbers trying to steal their treasures. Theirs, the doctor gaped. Theirs? By what right? By right of conquest. Oh, my God. Rose felt her blood run cold. A dark, undulating shape had resolved itself from out of the starry indigo overhead. It was like staring up at the vast, fleshy underbelly of some huge, segmented creature that had come crawling out of the crevices of deeper space, and it was plummeting to earth at an alarming rate. Never seen a spaceship like that before. I have. The doctor looked at Faltato, pursed his lips. So, they're your sponsors. Suppose it makes sense? Not happy with wiping out the Valnaxi, they're coming to stamp over whatever was left behind. Suddenly, huge, puckering mouths opened up in the quivering base of the thing. They spat out thick, foul-smelling muck at an incredible rate, and Rose and Basel almost gagged. In a matter of seconds, two entire crop fields were buried under a mountain of the stuff. The TARDIS! she breathed. Doctor, the TARDIS is under there! The strange ship squelched down, using the muck mountain to cushion its impact. Then, suddenly, the mud was alive with dozens of monstrous shapes. Each was the size of a baby elephant, with a pale, glistening, segmented body like a giant earthworm. They wore strange suits of crumbling white armor round their wriggling torsos, with strange metal attachments on their stubby arms. What are those things? Basil croaked. They're called worms, said the doctor. Fought the Valnaxi across seventeen star systems. At the sight of the worms, the golems pressed forward, screeching, roaring, and howling towards the enormous mud pile and the writhing invaders. So, Africa becomes the final battleground, the doctor murmured, as the carnage and chaos began. Adiel stared out through the dusty window of the beleaguered agri-unit. Finn crouched beside her. They'd been waiting tensely for Basel, Rose, Solomon, and this mysterious doctor to return with some answers. But now she couldn't even believe the questions. Spaceships? Worms as big as a jeep? Everything had gone crazy. The giant worms had a number of guns affixed to a sort of stumpy shoulder. One fired clod after clod of earth from its end with a buzzing, crackling sound. Thick mucks splattered over the golems in a sticky wave. A human golem took a load in the chest. For a few moments he ignored it and carried on walking. But there were living things in that earth, squirming, scuttling, hungry things. They started devouring the gleaming shield of magma along with any flesh left behind. More gobs of mud fired from the giant earthworm's stubby cannons, seething with hungry life. The man-golem stopped still, his mouth hanging open in a piercing scream as the bugs ate their fill of him. Seconds later, there was nothing left but a charred, misshapen skeleton. The same thing was happening again and again, the ranks of gleaming gold giving way to ash and mangled bone as the mud splattered through the golem ranks. But the flying defenders, the bats, the vultures, the sausage flies, made harder targets and enjoyed more success. They swooped down on the giant worms, greedily tearing chunks from the pink, wrinkled flesh. 
One of the worms started flailing about in agony, a fluid-like wallpaper paste gushing from its gashes. Rose felt her insides churn as the battle got messier, more violent, more and more desperate. It's ruined, breathed Basel. The whole agri-unit messed up forever. What's with the mud guns? said Rose. An established worm method of controlling the Guardian's converted servants, Faltato explained. The mud is teeming with insects specially reared to feed on the magma and whatever flesh it is controlling. You've seen battles like this before, then? He started them, said the doctor coldly. My job is simply to identify that the warren is genuine, Faltato retorted. The Valnaxi laid many false trails. Rumour has it that centuries into the conflict, once their race finally accepted they stood no chance of winning, the Valnaxi Council built one final stronghold to house the last and greatest of their treasures. This is the place. Oh, so that's what you are, the doctor murmured. Not a thief, an expert. The David Dickinson of interstellar art. Faltato clacked his pincers. I, sir, am a member of the Hydrophylactic Fellowship and an authority on... Hard times, I would guess, since you've hired yourself out to a race as pathologically unstable as the worms, the doctor went on. What's your cut, then? What bunts do you get that makes slaughter like this, devastation like this, acceptable to you, Faltato? He bellowed with rage. What?! One percent of the value of the hall, and the credit for identifying the final Valnaxi art warren, said the creature calmly. Once news of that gets around, my reputation will be re-established and the phone won't stop ringing. Rose stared out dismally over the fighting, then turned to the doctor. Are we just going to stand around up here and let that happen? No, said Faltato. You are coming with me. The beacon's function is fulfilled. Our means of deliverance is already approaching. What's that? said Basel distantly. Looks like a bubble. Sort of cocoon, I think, said the doctor. Or is it an egg sack? Yeah, an air thrust egg sack. That's lovely. That'll hold us good and strong. The doctor looked at Rose. I think we'll be off. Stay here. Faltato snapped, his tongue lashed out, slapping itself around the doctor's neck. Get off him! Rose shouted. Basel cried out as another tongue, a string-thin one, flicked out like fishing line to hook him round the waist. My flossing tongue! Faltato explained as a third tongue splashed out like a long grey eel. And this is the tongue I eat with. It came within a centimetre of touching Rose's arm, but the doctor dived to the ground, yanking on the tongue so hard it spoiled Faltato's aim. Run for it, Rose! the doctor panted. What about you? she shouted. But Faltato's tongue was already snaking towards her, and while she was free, at least there was a chance she could do something. She stumbled away as fast as she could. End of Disc 1 
disc two. Something kicked the door open, knocked Adiel flying backwards and dived for cover beside her. It was Rose Tyler. Solomon's dead. The doctor and Basel are being held by some alien thing who's going to take them to see these giant worms who are blasting the hell out of the golems with killer mud so they can pinch their art treasures. Rose stopped for a breath. We've got to find a way of getting them out and... I'm sorry. Finn's voice made her spin round. Flanking him were two of the giant earthworm monsters. Their tapering, segmented heads peered round blindly beneath their silver helmets. Their bodies were covered in thick, stinking mud, and at this range, Adiel could see that their stubby arms were encased in electronics, enhanced by robotic parts. Their cannons were somehow grafted onto the pale flesh. The combat helmet was almost a part of them. Techno-worms, Rose cringed. Terrific! One of the creatures reared up over them, and Adiel recoiled in horror. You are prisoners of war, it said, shuffling forward on its tail, or its belly, or whatever it was. Ambulate ahead of us. Now, attempt to escape, and you will be eaten alive. They were herded ahead of the slithering worms, back out into the stifling heat of the noisy night. Basel peeped out at the crazy world below through his fingers, as the bubble floated high over the battlefield. The doctor just sat there, grinning beside Faltato. I've never flown by egg sac before, he confessed cheerily. The bubble changed course, dropping sharply from the sky. Basel's heart sank in sympathy. He realized that they were now directly over the worm ship. Somehow the bubble seemed to pass straight through the hull and sank down into a transparent tube. Then suddenly the skin shrank back like a gum bubble punctured. The tube melted away, and Faltato shoved the doctor and Basel forwards. They were standing in a messy wreck of a control room. Banks of soil were heaped here and there around controls, which looked like vast, bristling tree roots. In place of the sort of sci-fi scanners and monitors Basel had expected, cobwebbed sacks wobbled on mounds of mud here and there. The doctor stared, fascinated as two huge white worms pushed up from out of the ground in front of them. The bigger of the two sported a tangle of thick green creepers on top of his glistening, featureless head, like a crown. "'Abase yourself at the belly of King Otak,' said the smaller of the two worms. The doctor waved a hand in front of his nose, put on his glasses and studied the creature closely. Which bit is the royal belly? The worm squirted a dark fluid into the doctor's face, so hard it knocked his glasses off his nose. The liquid was rank and salty, and it splashed over Basel's face too, stung his eyes. Quickly, the doctor joined Basel on his knees. Valdato, have you located the deactivation plaque? boomed King Otak. I have, Your Majesty, Faltato replied, but, alas, the activation will not be straightforward. It lies buried beneath a rock fall. You have the coordinates? Naturally, I do, sire. Deactivation plaque, the doctor wondered. 
Suppose the Valnaxu would want to get back in some day and pick up their valuables, if they'd won, of course. Do not speak such blasphemy in my presence, King Otak roared. The Valnaxi could never win. We are the conquerors of space, the destroyers of worlds, and Earth will soon rank among them. We shall wipe out the Valnaxi guardians, seize their artworks, lay waste to their shrines, and devastate this entire planet. The doctor glared up at him. I won't let you do this. Ten-toed scum, you cannot stop us. We shall wring from your world what nutrients we can, then leave it barren and dead, a final monument to the art of destruction. Rose felt like she was being marched through hell. Once outside the main complex, the stench, the heat, and the sights and sounds of battle fixed every step with horror. Corpses lay scattered all about. Yet still the golems kept coming, bats and birds, even gleaming mutated worms, and still the dull, wet splat of worm guns echoed on. Adiel's hand found her own, and Rose gripped hold of it. Finn was walking ahead of them. The worms were lumbering along behind them. Pause. One of the worms hissed wetly in her ear. Rose saw a shimmering cloud of golden smoke pull itself from out of the wind-blown ash. Mosquitoes! Finn shouted. More guardians! The worms curled down behind her and Adiel, and suddenly she realized they weren't just being marched ahead of their captors. They were human shields. Rose stood dead still, but before she could even start to think of what to do, the cloud of mosquitoes parted like a gauzy curtain around them and moved on. Adiel was almost breaking Rose's hand. She was squeezing so tight. How come they don't attack us? Next second, Rose felt sticky wet flesh slapped up against her cheek as one of the worms pressed against her. You ally yourselves with the Vanaxi creatures. Look out! Adiel shouted as a livid gold blur beat a path through the smog. An eagle or something, snapping at the worms, flew a jetted over Rose's shoulder as her guard's flesh was torn by beak or claw. The worm holding her gave a gurgling roar of anger and coiled itself about her, soggy segments contracting against her skin as it writhed upwards, lifted her kicking and screaming into the path of the golem. It'll rip me to pieces, she thought. But the misshapen eagle gave a screech of anger and backed off. The other worm grabbed Adiel in much the same way, held her up like she was a living crucifix seeing off a swooping vampire, the eagle thing soon gave up and went away. Rose caught Adiel's eye. They connected in baffled expressions. I don't know what happened either. Continue your ambulation, Adiel's worm told Finn. Gonna put me down, Rose said as casually as she could. No, the worm replied, a deep gouge in its face, the only visible features as it turned to its comrade. Hurry. We must report to the king. The guardians do not attack the human bipeds. Since when? said Adiel, gasping as the worm set off again. What's changed? Basel watched King Otak squirming about the control room, 
peering at each of the crackling, muddy monitor screens in town, conferring with the other worm, who was called Kor. They were getting reports from the field, Basel supposed. Then suddenly Kor steamed over. Explain the nature of your people's alliance with the Valnaxi. We haven't got one, Basel protested. But I can see why you might think so, said the doctor, getting slowly back up to his feet, staring past Basel at one of the monitors. It showed an aerial view of Adiel and Rose in the grip of two worms, Finn in front of them being herded across the ruined concourse. They've caught everyone, Basel breathed. Then he realized that gathered all around were golems, insects, birds, dogs, moving along like a grisly escort. It's as if they've been programmed not to attack human bipeds, mused the king. And yet we have seen converted humans in the ranks of our enemies. No doubt the deactivation plaque was damaged in the rockfall, said Faltato. It's malfunctioning. Perhaps, Artak conceded. It's interesting. The doctor was smiling. Don't you think that's interesting, Basel? I think I might be needed. Artak shuffled slowly towards them, his voice quiet and dangerous. What assistance can you offer us? Well, for a start, the doctor pointed to a static-filled screen, unfazed. The Valnaxi know your biotech, right? They can detect your scan frequencies and block them, so you can't see inside that mountain. He held up the data get. I can. This baby can show you the entire layout of the Valnaxi warren at a glance. A mechanical probe arm whirred out from a stump of raw flesh growing from Kor's torso and took hold of the data get. He examined it. Your scanning machine cannot function as you say it can. The doctor winked at Basel, placed one hand behind his back. Let me guess. You've noticed the data get's memories getting clogged by the amount of scan data available, right? Basel saw him discreetly drop some tiny circuits and press them into the dirt beneath his heel. Memory wafers. They'll fix it up in three seconds flat. Where can memory wafers be acquired? Kor wheezed. The doctor looked at Basel, wide-eyed and innocent. Oh, I don't know. Lab and the unit's probably our best bet, wouldn't you say, Basel? Especially as there'll be other bipeds loitering there. Basel frowned. What ones? The staff. The doctor gave him a play-along look. He strolled over to a monitor which now showed Adiel, Finn and Rose being hustled into some kind of muddy prison area. He tapped the image of Finn. This man is director of this complex. He's a prisoner of war, stated Kor. Like all prisoners, he will be questioned, then executed and cremated so that his body will not pollute soil. One approach, the doctor conceded, but think about it. Aren't all your prisoners worth more to you alive? These humans seem to be the most powerful defense you've got right now, and Director Finn's staff in the unit will surrender to him if he orders them to. No question. Patrol 7 found no further trace of biped activity in the unit grounds, Kor argued. King Otak seemed to consider. But battle analysis supports the theory that the Guardian drones are not attacking bipeds. 
Bazel looked at the doctor and spoke in the softest of voices. What happens if they find out you're lying? Then they'll kill me a little sooner, said the doctor simply. Rose had never been happier to be locked away. The cell was dimly lit, hard and knobbly like walnut shell, and only a little bigger. But at least it was just her, Finn and Adiel. No worms or golems. Suddenly she jumped, as with a creaking, sucking noise, a hatch sprang open in front of her. All my pets are to leave the cells, rasped the worm in front of her. The doctor and Basel stood just behind. Doctor! Rose! You all right? About as unall right as it's possible to be, said Rose. The worm moved forwards to face Finn. You are leader of these bipeds? He nodded. Very well. Prisoners, doctor and director, you will accompany me to the complex. If you try to escape, you will be killed, ingested and excreted in casts. He nodded his fat, tapering head. For extra protection, I shall also take the pale creature. Mum's fake tan was a big success then said Rose sourly. Back out onto the stinking, ash-shrouded battleground, Rose, the Doctor and Finn were having to hold hands around the worm soldier, as if they were playing ring-a-ring-a-roses, surrounding and shielding it, trying to match its obscene, wriggling movements as it squelched through the mud and bones. Lovely stroll, said the Doctor brightly. How about a bit of conversation? Shut it, said Cor. Or you'll do what? the doctor challenged. Out here, where your protection, remember? So if it's all the same to you, I think we'll talk. The worm made a hissing, straining noise, like an elephant on the loo. The doctor ignored him. So, Finn, tell me more about your experiments. I remember you saying that fungus could grow on just about anything. I was wondering if you tried animal matter. Yes, but the genetic structures are incompatible, Finn said. Animal cells have semi-porous membranes controlling what passes in and out. Fungi have cell walls protecting the insides from physical movements which could prove harmful. Of course, said the doctor. That's got to be it. Could be our only chance. He paused. Tell me, Cor, have you seen any of the magmaform guardians out on the front line? They cower in fear of us. The worm hissed as do all our enemies. Yeah, yeah. Funny, though, isn't it? Hanging back and picking on the likes of Solomon when they're actually the best fighters. Maybe the Guardians wanted to get back at Solomon for bringing the roof down on their golden plaque thing, Rose suggested. The doctor frowned. Golden plaque, eh? That must be the deactivation panel Faltato mentioned. I'd like to take a look at that myself. Perhaps you will, said Cor. When you join your fellows in slavery, clearing the caverns. I think I mentioned, said the doctor sharply, you should treat us with a bit more respect. While we're here, nothing's going to attack. Look out! Rose screamed as a glowing ball of fiery energy came rolling out of the ashen mist. It was one of the guardians, tired of the tunnels perhaps, ready to rumble, making straight for her. She pulled her hands away and staggered back, breaking the circle. 
The worm spat dark juices at the creature, but it ignored him, grew larger, surged out and slopped against her feet. The doctor grabbed hold of Rose's hand to try to pull her clear, but she could already feel a searing heat rising up through her legs, blistering her from the inside. For a moment her eyes met the doctor's, then she screwed them up as the pain tore through her, as the guardian flowed up her body, drawing her into the furnace of its form. Her vision burnt blood red for a moment as weird shadows started to solidify in her sight. Then she was dissolved and gone, and knew nothing. Finn stared in terror as the magma form flowed over the flailing form of the doctor's friend. One moment she was struggling, the next she was frozen, limbs splayed out, a golden statue. But she didn't remain still like the others, and she didn't attack. She turned and ran away. The guardian retreated after her as the worm fired its stubby cannon. Mud and insects splattered over the ground just beside it, but the guardian kept moving, soon swallowed by the ghostly swirl of sand, just as Rose was. Then something grabbed Finn by both shoulders, spun him around. He started to shout, but a bony hand clamped down on his mouth. It was the doctor, face pressed up close, eyes dark and wild. Finn could see the pain there, the anger the refusal to face up to a truth so hard. The doctor threw him towards the nearby complex. Run! Stop! The worm roared after them. Bipeds will cease ambulation! Not right now, they won't! The doctor called back. See ya! Finn heard the squelch of the cannon, flinched as a huge clot of mud splattered against the wall of the complex saw the doctor holding open the door to the lab unit and threw himself inside, shivering so hard he could hardly draw breath. Don't understand, Finn said. What made the magma form attack us now? It didn't attack us. It attacked Rose. First Solomon, then Rose. We've got to work fast. The doctor reached in his pocket, then scowled. And without the sonic screwdriver. Come on, the lab. What are you planning? Those experiments of yours, I'm guessing you tried to create an interface between flesh and fungus at a cellular level, right? Finn nodded. I tried to create hybrid cells. I had some limited success, but, well, luckily I'm not limited, not by anything. The doctor bundled him away down the deserted corridor. I'm a genius, so I'm going to succeed where you fail, right? I'm going to do it in about five minutes flat. Easy. But why? What are you... The Guardian converted the fungus into a sentry unit, but your shrooms threw off their chains, alien protein chains, and re-established their original form. He strode along to the lab and kicked open the door. That's got to be down to the basic cellular mismatch. If we can come up with a way to harden the cell membranes into cell walls just long enough to drive out the magma infection, then, hey presto, we'll have an anti-golem serum, and that could be Rose's one chance. He slammed his hand down on the bench. Fungus samples. Where? 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 Finn hurried to the safe. Doctor, you had this idea in mind before your friend was infected, didn't you? Why? There are two sides in any war, said the doctor. The Varnaxi fought the worms for millennia. They might just know some weakness we can use to end this carnage before the earth cops it. But they were all wiped out. Something's playing God to these golems. Straining... He heaved the lead box with the bat inside it on top of the workbench. So I thought I could whiz up some golem repellent to use on myself. He grabbed a data get and trained it on the first of the files Finn produced from the safe. 
The magma should infect me like it did the fungus, but with any luck it won't be able to take full control. Then I'll be able to commune with the magma forms without becoming one of them. The doctor pointed to the lead box. We can test it on the bat in there. See if he can throw off the golem effect. If it works on him, it should work on anyone. Finn's head was spinning. But how can you know if it will stop the magma force from taking you over? I can't for sure, but we can run a quick trial using this. Suddenly, Adiel's necklace was dangling from the doctor's fingers. The tiny specks of gold glowing in the crystals. Now, maybe you could shut up, think positive and get working. Basel huddled close to Adiel as Faltato dragged them through the narrow passages. They had used a weird bubble-like container to cross from the worm ship to the eastern lava tubes, floating high over the battlefield. The golems were fighting to keep the worms away from the double doors that gave entrance to the caverns, but had left Adiel Basel and even Faltato alone. Now two more of the translucent containers bobbed slowly after them, ready to be filled with Valnaxi treasures. A brief diversion. Faltato announced suddenly. I want to check on something. There's something fishy going on. He swung them into a narrow tunnel, one that ended in a huge pile of rocks. The deactivation plaque, said Faltato. So this deactivation plaque can turn off the golems and the guardians, said Adiel. If fed the right security code, it will deactivate the warrant's defenses, agreed Faltato before adding heavily. Hence the name. Then why isn't it better protected? she argued. Why isn't this place crawling with golems? As Basel approached the rubble-strewn plaque, the rocks began to rumble and stir. One toppled off the pile and skittered down to land at his feet. Basel frowned, tried to lift it. The thing should have weighed a ton, but this was rough and light like pumice. This ain't right, he called back. The rock's gone funny. Valtato galloped towards him. The rock has been exposed to some kind of intense energy field, he muttered. Just hours ago, the rock was solid enough. It is as if the binding force has been extracted. He swept more of the dusty debris clear, exposing the plaque. Then all five eyes narrowed in what might have been a frown. What is it? Adiel asked warily. This isn't a deactivation plaque, he murmured. It's designed to look like one, but the data feed is a fake. Well, if this doesn't deactivate anything, what does it do? breathed Adiel. What did it do? Faltato corrected her. It has been damaged, hence the energy leak, but its purpose. His legs rattled together, a sinister, unsettling sound. Why am I discussing this with bipeds? Adiel shrugged. Perhaps you should tell the worms. The Vanaxi blocked their signals. They won't be able to hear me. Faltato looked troubled. Later, perhaps. He turned and shuffled back up the side tunnel. Why was he discussing it with us? Basel murmured. Adiel regarded the monster bobbing about on his endless legs. I think because he's scared, she said. Finn pulled the latest sample from the centrifuge, prepared a slide and slotted it under the intron microscope. Even if this works, how are you going to administer the cure? He asked. The skin hardens like metal, so no syringe will... 
It's all right. I've thought of that, the doctor told him, holding up a data get. I've adapted this thing. Now it's a data give as well. When the serum's perfected, we can scan it, then broadcast it as an electrochemical irradiation. There was a crash from not far down the corridor. Finn shuddered. That worm will be here to kill us any minute. On the case, the doctor informed him, holding up a couple of stoppered files. Whipped up an explosive mixture in my spare time. Don't stop working. I'll take the other door, cut through the common room and double back round to draw core away. He slapped down one of the files on Finn's workbench. If the worm gets past me, use this, but hide under the bench first. It's a big bang and it will probably bring the roof down on you. Finn stared at the file, then turned his attention to mixing the samples. Be careful, doctor. Yeah, he said. One day. The doctor pelted through the corridors, working his way back to the lab block in a wide circle. He couldn't afford to waste much time on the worm. If Rose was to stand the tiniest chance, he had to be ready to move the moment Finn finished the concoction. He reached the lab block, ran on and on, until at last he kicked open the final set of double doors and saw the worm slinging its fat, tumescent body against the main lab. The barricade looked set to collapse any moment. Cor! the doctor bellowed. This is your last chance, I'm warning you! Leave this place now, or you'll never leave it! Threats, little biped, Cor hissed. If you have the means and will to destroy me, you would have launched an ambush from within the laboratory you've defended. Therefore, this is a distraction tactic. You wish to stop me from entering the laboratory. I don't have time for this. The doctor held the file above his head. This can destroy you. Don't make me use it. Kor raised the stump at his shoulder and, with a hydraulic hiss, a slim metal tube rotated into position. This weapon can destroy your laboratory. I can fire it before your projectile can touch me. With an electric whine, Kor powered up his gun. The doctor drew back his arm, ready to hurl the file. And then the doors of the lab blew open with the force of a massive explosion, an explosion that had gone off inside. Kor gave a retching, gurgling screech as glass and brick and metal spat out from the heart of the explosion, tearing great chunks from his body. Finn! the doctor shouted. He shoved the file in his pocket, picking his way through the debris into the ruined laboratory. Most of the ceiling had fallen in. He looked about frantically, then discerned Director Finn's head, an upper body protruding from beneath a broken bench, half buried under rubble. Doctor! Finn said very calmly, Would you come here? A moment later the doctor was crouched beside him. You threw the file. He saw the blood trickling from the man's mouth, saw his eyes slowly glazing. That was brave of you. If that thing had fired, our work might have been destroyed, Finn murmured. He pointed feebly to something. The lead box was open and on its side. A twisted, misshapen figure lay within, frosted with concrete dust, wings tightly furled. The serum works. On bats at any rate. Finn coughed, and fresh blood poured down his chin. The doctor tried to take his hand, but Finn was already clutching something. Find her. He pressed it into the doctor's hand, the data give. Serum scanned 
and ready to administer. Three or four doses, I think. He gripped the doctor's fingers. It had better work. It had better be worth this. The doctor nodded. It'll work. Finn smiled and nodded, shifted in the rubble like a child in bed, settling down to peaceful sleep. Then he was gone. The doctor gently patted Finn's hand and heard a quiet, scuffling noise beside him. A glowing point of light was shifting through the cement dust. Adiel's necklace had been crushed by the rubble, and the magma traces, freed from the shattered crystals, were moving towards him. The doctor stared down at the data give. It was time to test the solution on himself. A sharp coldness tangled through his veins, spreading up his arm. Then he reached out and touched the glowing speck. A wave of dizziness and nausea passed through him. The chemical reaction was kicking in, encasing every cell, and at the same time the magma stuff was singeing its way through his skin. He closed his eyes and saw crimson shadows shifting like smoke, felt other thoughts behind his own. The clone cell walls had built themselves up around his own, strengthening them. In time he should be able to shrug off the magma effect, just as the fungus had. There was no way of knowing how long before his body chemistry reasserted itself, and the cell walls came toppling down. The doctor shoved the data give in his pocket and ran off down the corridor. He didn't see the huge maggoty shape drag itself from its blanket of concrete and dust and come trailing into the ruined lab, sniffing the air, searching. Adiel helped Bazel place another of the weird webbed canvases into the back of the worm's transporter. Work slower, said Bazel quietly. We need to save some strength for escaping. Escaping? Where? She mouthed back. Stop plotting, said Faltato. There is nowhere you can go. Nowhere any of us can go. There was a note of self-pity in Faltato's voice that put Adiel more in mind of men than monsters. You can go wherever you want, can't you? My ship is moored to an asteroid eighty-seven light-years from here, said Faltato gloomily. The worms dislike independence in their contractors. Brazel was unmoved. Think you are mistaking us for people who give a... Adiel held up a hand to shush him. What's bothering you, Faltato? You think something's wrong, don't you? These artworks. I didn't pay them enough heed before. Faltato shook his head. They should be some of the most famous of all Varnaxi treasures. But they're not. They're quite ordinary. He shook his pointed head. I don't trust this. And as the next transporter bobbed into view... And as Bazel wearily picked up the next painting, Adiel saw Faltato retreat a little way away, a furtive look in his many eyes. King Otak watched a loaded transporter hover silently into the cargo hold. Treasure, he sneered. To him it was filthy, worthless stuff, proof of the absolute weakness and vanity of the Valnaxi. The fools had devoted their lives to their art, 
Well, he had devoted his to destroying that art in all its forms. A vibration in the earth beneath him alerted him to someone coming. He turned expectantly, and suddenly a ghostly white head pushed upwards. It was Kor, burrowing free of the sucking soil. Half of his body had been torn away, trailing ligaments and implants. What happened, Kor? I have located the memory wafers, he said, spitting them out of his mouthskin. The bipeds betrayed us. But their machinery is sound, pronounced Otak. You have done well, Kor. We shall map out the warren and raise all defenses. Destroy its central systems, empty its treasures, and crush them underbelly in the streets of every planet. The doctor peered in through the vulture hole in the lava tube's roof. A golden glow was stirring in the thick shadows, pulsing like a heart, waiting. Coming, Rose, he said softly. He dropped through the hole. He knew the Valnaxi guardian would be waiting to break his fall. Sure enough, it surged out, enveloped him. He didn't even have time to shout out. The burning power was engulfing him, plating his flesh, claiming him. The doctor was dimly aware of his body rising up, moving like a sleepwalker through the split at the back of the cave. The darkness should have been absolute, but a golden gleam seemed to be lighting his way. It was coming from his skin. The realization shocked him into full wakefulness, and he put his fingers to his face. It felt cold and hard. His body had begun to turn golem, and his mind was heading the same way. This skin is so not my colour, he complained noisily, trying to wake himself up as much as anyone else. I mean, Space City in carnival time, it'd go down a storm. But 22nd century Africa? Come on! Under a volcano? He gave a sharp intake of golden breath, slapped his forehead, felt nothing. Underneath a volcano! How can I have been such a div? The data-get scans were taken from Solomon's jeep. They only showed a cross-section through the volcano. They didn't show what was hiding underneath it. And even if he could point the DG down at the ground right now, it only had a range of a kilometre or so. There was as much as 40 kilometres of crust down there before you reached the mantle. And that's where you're hiding, isn't it? Deep, deep in the ground, close to the magma that feeds you, and out of range of my scanning equipment. But how do I reach you, then, hmm? Since this cave was so well guarded, I'm thinking maybe there's a shortcut, a teleport. Well, am I coming to you? He yelled. Or are you coming to me? The next second, smoky pillars of light appeared in front of him. He took a step towards them and felt a tingle like a current through his plated skin. Teleport, he said, grinning to himself. I've still got it. Suddenly he was in a huge circular space, a giant chimney of flame-red rock stretching upwards into blackness. Four jagged holes were cut into the sides of the natural arena, doorways of some kind, but too dark for him to see what lay beyond. A sibilant whisper swirled through his head like smoke. Don't resist us. By blocking our controls, you're upsetting the balance of the defense network. 
We cannot manipulate our servants. We cannot resist our enemies. Then you'd better give me what I want right now, snapped the doctor out loud. Rose Tyler, you can't harm me anymore, but the worms can harm you, and I'll let them. I don't know why you took her, but I want her back, now. A curtain of smoke seemed to gust away from a dark doorway as two shiny golden figures shambled into the arena. Misshapen statues of a man and a girl. Oh, God, the doctor whispered. The male figure was clearly all that was left of Solomon Nabar, but it was the sight of the girl that made the doctor's heart stop dead. Her face was a distorted mask. The body was hunched and simian. One arm flapped feebly, clearly broken in two places, while the other was swollen like the misshapen legs. She stood facing him, her distorted features fixed in reproach. Rose? He croaked. Oh, Rose. Stop fighting us, came the voice. There's nothing worth fighting for now. You have lost her. You have lost Rose Tyler. Surrender yourself to us. Stuff that. I'll never surrender. He looked at the rose golem, suddenly wary. I don't trust this. He pivoted on one golden foot, shouting into the shadows. You're trying to pull a fast one. Who are you? Suddenly, Rose's gleaming skin turned brittle, tore away in flakes of gold. The doctor stared in alarm as her lumpy face broke open like a shell or a chrysalis, because there was another face behind the crumbling mask like an artist's impression of Rose, a sketch somehow brought to life. The dead husk of the body peeled away to reveal the slim, muscular figure underneath. It was not hard and golden, nor glowing like magma. The dark honey flesh looked baby-smooth and flawless. No human complexion could compare. A similar stylized figure was stepping out of Solomon's golem, but the doctor's eyes were riveted to the girl. Rose? the doctor whispered. No, said a low, soft voice. Not Rose. Rose Tyler is only the template. What do you mean, template? The future of the Valnaxi race. The words came from the male's precisely sculpted lips. Translation pattern now complete. New physical form achieved for both genders. Templates can be discarded. We wish you to surrender peacefully, said the newly hatched Rose. But we must stop your mental disruption before the worms destroy what is left of our army. The doctor backed away, but the golden shades moved with balletic speed and grace to grab him. While the male grabbed him in a bear hug, the female's fingers closed round his throat. She looked oddly unhappy about it, though, staring blankly at her hand as if not trusting its movements. Being throttled ought to hurt, he decided, but it didn't. Ha! he laughed in the female's face. Is that all you've got? Can't feel a thing? He brought up both legs and planted his feet in the female's stomach, then pushed 
That broke her grip on his throat and made the male overbalance. New body's always tricky getting used to them, isn't it? The doctor remarked. Do not fight control, shouted the male. Our enemies are near. We must have defences. And I must have Rose, he shouted back. Solomon too. They're not templates to be discarded, they're people. If you will release them and send them out of this place through one of your teleporters, then I'll give myself up to you. The figures looked at each other. Then they took a few steps backwards as a golden smoke began to waft across the centre of the arena. Moments later, two golems appeared, the real Rose and Solomon, standing still as statues but not yet mutated. Reverse the effect, he demanded. If that were possible, said the female that had taken Rose as a template, we would have done so on you. Good point. So, it's down to me, muttered the doctor, pulling the data give from his pocket. He paused for just a second, then gave Rose the first dose, Solomon the second. He held his breath, wondering if it would work, or if all his wild improvising and Finn's bravery had been for nothing. Now you must surrender yourself, said the male. You said you'd teleport them to safety. There is nowhere safe while you block our network, but they will be taken from here. The doctor bit his golden lip and closed his eyes. Darkness pressed in on him almost at once. There was a force in that darkness that wanted to do his thinking for him, wanted to control him. Take care, Rose, he whispered as he let those thoughts crash in and drown him. King Otak and his worm hordes squelched into the chamber. Your Majesty, said Faltato. The Worm King's voice was an icy rasp. Where is the loner Venus? Where are the masterworks? I wish to spit on them. Ah, Faltato grimaced. There might be a tiny, teeny, tiny problem there. Faltato... Otak slithered closer. Did you, or did you not, identify this warren as the last Vanaxi stronghold? Based on the evidence gathered from the last warren, it was only logical to assume... And have we, or have we not, traveled thousands of light years to secure the promised treasures? I'm sure the treasures will be here somewhere, and have no doubt you will seek them out with your usual aplomb. Cover the exits, Artak told his troops. They squirmed off to obey. Faltato shifted uneasily. King Artak. If the artworks are not here, then this is not the last of the Warrens, as you claimed. You are therefore a charlatan or a fool, and I will not tolerate either. The great works must be here somewhere, said Valtato desperately. Our scans show there is nothing more, Artak insisted. I will not be cheated. Squad, take aim. Adiel stared in horror as the worm's stump guns trained themselves on Valtato. With a yelp, he yanked her and Basel back to their feet. Bipeds are soft and fleshy, Faltato, Otak went on. 
They will not shield you from us. Basel tried weakly to struggle, but Adiel found herself paralyzed. Time seemed to slow to a dread crawl. Death was coming. The doctor opened his eyes, but they felt gritty and sore. Feeling something. That's nice. Ow, nice-ish. He knelt up and rubbed at his eyes with his hands. Unless he was very much mistaken, they were fleshy, dirty, and definitely non-golden hands. I'm back, he shouted. I was all ready to give myself up, but your magma gave up on me first. Couldn't handle the cell walls and gave up. Ha! He shook his head in disbelief. How jammy am I? I'm immune, and now Rose and Solomon will be too. You have risked all our lives. The voice came out of the darkness, ancient and dry. A pause. You are not like the human creatures. The doctor's eyes probed the darkness, trying to see who was talking. Have you been peeping while I was asleep? We have scanned you. You're right. But you're not like human creatures either, are you? So why are you trying to be? Now the doctor could make out strange, delicate machinery and instrument panels built above rocky perches set high in the rock. Seven huge, ornate structures, halfway between chairs and perches, resolved themselves from out of the gloom. In each, the body of a fierce, bird-like creature with fiery golden scales was propped. So, the Valnaxi race lives on, after all. We are the council of Valnax, said the ancient disembodied voice. Our bodies are long since dead. Only the intelligence survives. We knew the worms would revenge themselves on us. He turned at the sound to find the female in Rose's image standing just behind him. Knew that they would scour the universe to steal our treasures. And we knew that we could never return home. The male based on Solomon had also stepped out from the darkness, that we faced eternal persecution. So the chosen few hid themselves away down here, the doctor surmised. Though we lack flesh, we are many thousands, the old voice said. Though most choose to lie sleeping until they have a future to wake to. The doctor took a step closer to the thrones. But you knew the worms would find you some day. In fact, you wanted them to. You set a trap, didn't you? The worms are brutally efficient but unimaginative, came the old crackling voice. By defending each warren in the same way, we have conditioned their responses. They battle their way through a deactivation plaque and shut down the auto defenses, the doctor concluded. Then they ransack the warrens and pick up the clues, pointing them onto the next little treasure trove. But here it's different. The deactivation plaques respond only to the touch of flesh. The plaque far above is a fake. It conceals a genetic sampler pre-programmed to extract DNA, life essence, and psychic energy at first touch. Everything we need to reformat our race from a new template. Why? If the Valnaxia ever to return to our home world and no peace, we need new identities, a new form. 
the form of our tormentors. The worms? The doctor stared in consternation. Why do you want to look like worms? It is for our art we have done this, came the dry old voice. Away from the homelands we cannot create. Our most valuable masterworks are hidden away in vaults here, and we wait with them until the day we can return to create new and better works, living among our conquerors in secret. The doctors stared at the bodies on their thrones. So you want to look like worms so you could fit in back home. Only it's all gone wrong, hasn't it? Because here you are, all arms and legs. After all those centuries, the worms didn't make it to the bogus deactivation plaque first, did they? He shook his head sadly at the gleaming, stylized figures. Solomon did. As she stared down the barrels of two dozen cannons, Adiel realized something was digging into her back, something in Faltato's breast pocket. A little jolt of hope went through her, and she twisted in Faltato's grip. Don't make me look at them, she wailed, pressing herself up against him and dipping into the pocket. Her fingers closed on the doctor's magic tube. King Otak, said Faltato wretchedly, Allow me to speak to my fellows at the Hydropilactic Fellowship. Let them double-check my findings and prove to you. Discreetly she pulled out the tube, reached over and pressed it into Basel's hand. He started, looked at her, grinned and nodded. Faltato's nerve finally broke and he launched into a desperate stumbling run, dragging his human shield with him. Aim your weapons! Otak roared to his troops. Basel raised the thin little tube. A blue glow of power buzzed from its tip. Adiel waited, breath baited. Nothing happened. Destroy them all! roared Otak. But then Adiel blinked as a skein of golden smoke drifted into sight right in front of them. Two gleaming figures began to form there. Golems! shouted Basel. Adiel closed her eyes. She listened to the squelch of the worm cannons, blast after blast, and wondered how come she was still alive. But only when she felt human hands gripping her own did she open her eyes. Solomon was crouching protectively over her, no longer golden, just the same as he'd always been. I... I thought you were dead, she stammered. There's still time, he said grimly, dragging her up. Come on, move! Adiel saw in a moment that Faltata was no longer prime target. The worms had opened fire on the storm of bats and vultures that had soundlessly swooped into the chamber to attack, and the packs of misshapen dogs and hyenas that now came snapping and howling to join the fray. The worm, guarding the jagged entrance to the next chamber, had left his post to take part in the fighting, and Adiel realized that Rose was leading Basel to shelter there. Faltata was already disappearing through the slit in the stone. Where did you appear from? Out of thin air, I think, said Rose. She looked pale and woozy. Faltato sniffed. You were sent through a matter transporter. It was amazing, said Basel. They came through this smoky yellow light, all gold and gollumy. 
Then he just wore off, and they were normal. We weren't regular golems, said Rose. We were like golems deluxe. I could see you all, said Solomon distantly. The moment I was taken, it was like I was part of some greater mind. I did my best to keep those golden creatures away from you, but when I knew whatever was holding me needed a female for study, I... He looked between Adiel and Rose, awkward and shamefaced. I couldn't let Adiel. It's okay, Rose said. She's your mate. You only just met me. Listen to me. Valtato's five eyes narrowed at Solomon and Rose. You've been held in a hidden Valnaxi stronghold, haven't you? How many Valnaxi are there? I don't know, said Rose. It all gets blurry. There were these voices in my head, eyes, inside my body. She frowned, rubbing at her arm. The doctor got us back. He must still be down there. They've got him. Excellent, Voltata declared. Not just a hidden Valnaxi stronghold, but a populated one. What better to get a thug king like Otak back on side than the chance to personally slaughter the last of his bitterest enemies? The gunfire stopped, Solomon hissed. But I'm just getting started. Before anyone could react, Valtato jumped up, grabbed hold of Rose and dragged her over towards the entrance to the worm-infested cavern. Get off her, Basel shouted, and he, Adiel and Solomon began to follow. But Valtato cracked out five tongues at once like whips. Keep back, he warned them. As he pushed Rose up against the split in the rock, she guessed by the smoking bones lying around that the worms had come out victorious. Hear me, Otak, Valtato shouted. There is a secret Valnaxi lair hidden somewhere close by, reachable only by teleport. That's where you'll find the masterworks and the last of the Valnaxi. King Otak casually fired a laser bolt in their direction, and Rose flinched as her face was peppered with shrapnel. I witnessed the warp hole opening with my own senses. I shall investigate without your aid. Valtato backed off, but Rose was still peering out of the hole in the wall. They've gone through that teleport thing. I've got to get after them. She was already sprinting towards the pall of golden smoke, which still lingered in mid-air in the centre of the cavern. You can't just run in there, Adiel shouted after her. You've got no cover, no protection, Basel added. Rose skidded to a halt beside the floating egg-shaped transporter. He was right. What the hell could she do? Then, mind-racing, she took in the assortment of canvases and statues piled up inside the transport and a slow smile spread over her face. The doctor watched helplessly as Otak led a squad of twenty worms straight into the throne room. A magma guardian split itself into smaller blobs and rolled forwards to attack. Three worms were turned into golden statues, only to be blasted by their fellow troopers a moment later. The male and female were crouching behind the thrones out of sight, looking terrified and with good reason. Otak was pushing through his writhing warriors, transfixed by the bodies on the thrones. Valnaxi, the king roared. Surrender your treasures to me! Then one of the worms saw the doctor, shot a laser bolt in his direction. Oi! 
the doctor complained, ducking aside. I'm neutral in all this. He began to climb towards the rocky roof, past various panels in the wall. Guidance and crew systems, he noted, interested despite himself. Not just a throne room, then, a flight deck. Another bolt of laser fire buzzed past him, and the doctor looked down at the worms crossly. Boiling lava was raining down on King Otak, scorching skin and soil alike, but he seemed oblivious to anything except crowing over the remains of the Valnaxi Council. "'Beg for your lives!' he commanded. "'In the name of the five curves of the Worm Empire, I kill you!' "'You can never kill us!' boomed the disembodied voice. But the king had already opened fire with his laser, blasting bolt after bolt into the great bronzed bodies, scorching them, destroying them. "'Die!' he wailed madly. I shall ingest your blood, excrete it into my finest soil, and ingest it again. Die! Two of the guardians flowed onto him. The doctor looked away as the worm's scream stopped dead. The magma might have consumed his body, but Otak's mind had been consumed by his blind hatred long ago. The other worms were fighting on, the male and the female their targets now. The doctor stared down helplessly. Then suddenly remembered the explosive file he'd cooked up back in Finn's lab. He reached in his pocket, pulled it out. He only had the one shot. What to do with it? Then suddenly a worm transporter came racing through the throne room's entrance like a bat into hell. It sent worms scattering like skittles, squashing a magma form as it landed square on top of it. Then the hatch sprang open to reveal a very familiar pilot. Rose! the doctor yelled, and he laughed with delight. What do you think you're doing? "'Rescuing you!' she shouted back, kicking a worm cannon aside and hurling the sonic screwdriver up to him. "'Someone's got to save the day!' "'How right you are!' He stuck the file between his teeth, caught the sonic in his left hand, pulled free a conduit snaking up to the roof with his right. Then he leaned back, spat the file at the guidance controls, and launched himself into space, gripping the thick cable. The control panel exploded noisily as he swung out over the smoking chaos of battle below towards another panel. "'What are you doing?' hissed the accusing, crackling voice in his ears. As a matter of fact, the doctor grinned wildly, jumping back down to the ground. "'I'm taking off!' "'You have activated the drive system. Initiated launch sequence. I had to.' said the doctor simply. This is your war, not Earth's. Whoever wins or loses, this planet's people will be destroyed. Rose smiled at him uncertainly. So, you're forcing a draw. He nodded as the arena shook with the blast of some colossal explosion deep beneath it. The ship's going to take off, and it'll take most of this volcano with it. I had to make the call. Everyone on this planet, or us. Us, said Rose. Afraid so, he said, as the vibrations worsened around them and dust and debris began to trickle from the ceiling. The teleport power feeds were damaged in the fighting. Even if we survive the takeoff, we'll be trapped here for the rest of our lives. That will not be long, rasped the battle-scarred worm behind them. She heard a whir of gears as its gun attachments extended, then the buzz of the sonic screwdriver. The worm screeched as its gun started to jerk about. I've turned his battle implants up to ten, said the doctor. Should put him out for a while. But Rose was staring the other way, 
as a faint trail of golden light appeared like stardust. Doctor, the teleport, she shouted. The worms used their communicators to open it, boost the frequencies or something. Through you go, quick, shouted the doctor, bundling Rose towards it. Not without you. She grabbed his hand and dragged him after her. They vanished into the golden void and emerged again in the silent, deserted cavern. The doctor looked almost comically startled, and Rose stared around in disbelief. We made it, she breathed. We actually made it. They weren't alone. Her golden double was standing before her with the golden Solomon. The doctor squared up to them. I blew up your navigation systems. I couldn't allow the Valnaxi to fly straight back here and butcher all humanity into their image. We know what you did, said the Golden Solomon. That is why we too chose to remain on Earth. After so many empty centuries clutching at schemes and dreams, breathed Rose's golden double, our people must taste life again in any form. A vast tremor tore through the cavern. If we hang around here, you won't be tasting it for long, the doctor shouted. Run! What's happening? Basel yelled as Solomon, Adiel and Faltato followed him out of the lava tubes and into the dusty daylight. Is the volcano erupting? Feels more like a spaceship getting ready to take off from out of the volcano. Faltato went clip-clopping off on his dainty legs. You do what you like, but I'm heading for the worm ship. It's got a plasma force field. Solomon frowned. A what? It'll keep us safe if we get inside, Adiel panted. You want to be out here when the top blows off that volcano? Together they raced up to the huge, slimy ship, sat upon its mountain of stinking mud, and then Basel stopped and stared. Solomon, look! Vivid green shoots were protruding everywhere from the soil, strong and fat and fleshy. It's the Convira crop, Solomon breathed, growing like wildfire. But this mock only came down last night, said Basel. It must be like super fertile. Come on, Adiel urged them, struggling up the trembling mud pile while Faltato raced ahead. Hang around out here, and it won't be Corn Vera we're pushing up. It'll be Daisy's. Rose raced on through the shaking tunnels. The air was thick with choking, blinding dust. The launch sequence is almost completed, the male said grimly. At last they came out into open air. The rotten egg stench of sulphur made Rose want to retch. She could see a poisonous yellow cloud belching from the spout of the volcano. It's going to erupt! She shouted, fear rooting her to the spot. Reaching the worm ships our only chance, the doctor bawled. Come on! Rose forced herself into action, running alongside the golden couple, the doctor leading the way, but in her heart she already knew it was too late. There was an ear-splitting boom as the air itself seemed to split apart. Rose fell flat on her face in the thick, muddy slime, twisted round to see the top of the volcano explode. A long, twisted shard of burnished metal burst out. The Valnaxi spaceship, like an arrow, shot into the stars. But the thick blanket of burning, white-hot debris that had burst out with it was already falling back to Earth. Rose realized that it would rain down right on top of them. She scrambled up the muddy slope into the doctor's arms. He bent over her, shielding her body with his own. But the debris never hit. 
It showered down, but then bounced and scattered and burnt up a good ten metres from the ground, as if an invisible umbrella had opened over them to absorb the deadly rain. Ha-ha! whooped the doctor. Plasma force field. I'm glad you got to the mudslopes in time, Adiel called from a hatch in the rubbery belly of the ship. We saw you coming, but it seems that's as far as the force field extends. The doctor looked impressed. You worked out the controls? We were able to twist Faltato's arms on your behalf, all four of them. Adiel had moved a little way down the slope. You're going to introduce us to your friends. The male and the female looked at the doctor. Don't know who you mean, he said lightly. There's no one here. No one I need to worry about. He looked at them both, stared deep into their golden eyes. Is there? Slowly they smiled and shook their heads. Faltato had graciously agreed to remove the worm spaceship before it was discovered by Earth investigators. Now the Earth's solar system was dwindling on the monitors and he was losing himself in future plans. He would leave with the finest of those art treasures on board, enough to pay off his debts, impress his peers and wow the ladies. He might even fund an expedition to locate that last lost Valnaxi ship and its hidden vault of masterpieces, or maybe simply set himself up in a little antiques place on Hastus Minor. Hello, Rose. Adiel breezed into the room, grabbed a drink from the fridge. Hello, acting director, Rose replied. Adiel looked tired as all hell, but as happy as someone who'd been there and come back. That mock is a gift. It's like a dream. It's perfect. It's too much to hope for. Rose grinned. You've run your tests and simulations on that. Anything grows in it, under pretty much any conditions, anything. With yields six to eight times greater than you'd get even with the most fertile soil on earth. Used in the right way, this stuff could revolutionize farming. Turn around the world's food shortage. She smiled. That mod could save millions of lives. It honestly could. So I'm going to say it was spewed up in that mysterious volcanic eruption and file a claim in the name of the African people. Seriously, you can do that. She smiled and lowered her voice. With all the admin generated by our little natural disaster here, it will take our sponsor's months to notice. And by the time she's finished doing her tests and telling the world what's what, said Bazel, breezing into the room with Solomon. The paperwork will be sorted, nice and legal. Hello, here's trouble, said Rose, grinning up at them. People have been either taking from us or giving us handouts way too long, Bazel went on. Now we're going to coin it big time, Rose nodded. So this sort of biopiracy is okay then? When the stuff you're pirating is from Jupiter or whatever, it doesn't count. Solomon reasoned. Whole world's going to want a piece of this miracle mod, and they can't pay for it. Basel tapped his nose. Through this, pricing will be fair, said Adiel patiently. This stuff can help starving people the world over. Mm-hmm, said Basel, starting here. We'll need to buy ourselves out of the agri-unit system and set up independently, said Solomon. It's going to be a hell of a lot of hard work but we'll get there. There were different ways to save the planet, Rose reflected. Short-term fixes and long-haul solutions. Looked like Adiel and the others 
were in this for the duration, maybe for their whole lives. That was cool. But what did the future hold for her, she wondered. She went out to join the doctor beside the smelly but salvaged TARDIS, free of the mud mountain at last. Through a yellow-gray cloud of volcanic smoke, the African sun was starting to set behind the shattered peak of Mount Tarsus. It was a beautiful sight, but the doctor had eyes only for his police box. You're going to wash it then, Rose wondered. It's well mucky. He considered, there's an Aulian rocket wash opening on Titan in 900 years' time. Pretty reasonable rates, as I recall. And what about this place in 900 years' time? she asked. Year 3000, he grinned. Middle of Africa's third golden age. So it's going to be goodbye to the third world, then, he nodded. With a little help from a fourth, Rose frowned. You don't normally like that. I mean, nicking alien technology and stuff. Oh, it's only mud. Anyway, it's always going on. Fact of life, he said dismissively. He looked out at the sunset himself for a while. Then he opened the TARDIS doors, and she walked into the welcoming sea-green coolness of the control room. What about the Valnaxi? You're just going to leave them here on Earth? Africa's been their home longer than anywhere else. She shivered. One of them looks like me, though. Maybe more than just looks, he said distantly. When they sifted through you for the template... What? Oh, I don't know. He looked pensive for a moment. They'll get one chance, that's all. But I think they'll be okay. You hope, said Rose. What's wrong with travelling hopefully? He suddenly grinned beguilingly. I've turned it into an art form. He threw a switch, and the TARDIS ground itself out of existence, taking them on to new adventures. On the edge of the desert, male and female sat in silent wonder, feeling the setting African sun on their skin. The sun feels good, said male. Free, murmured female. Free feels good, free of the ancient obligations. There is nothing we can do for our race now. Mail agreed. They will survive in their disembodied state. Perhaps they can sense their way back to the homeworld. Then, there's nothing we can do for our race now, female said again. So, we must live for ourselves. She looked down at her bare arms. The golden pigment was slowly darkening. But where shall we go, whispered Mail. How shall we live? You know from Solomon's thoughts that the old settlements are quiet and small and ignored, she told him. We shall find such a settlement, or we shall start our own. It doesn't matter. She closed her new eyes, worn dizzy with seeing. So much to experience in these forms. So much to suck in through these senses. Endure, said the male suddenly. We must endure. Find a way to make art that endures. That we must do for our race. She shook her head. We've endured long enough. It is time we learnt the art of living. Female rose and offered male her hand. He took it.
Doctor Who, The Art of Destruction, by Steve Cole, was read by Don Warrington and is published by BBC Audiobooks. Hi, my name is Stephen Cole, and I'm the writer of The Art of Destruction. With me is Don Warrington, uh, who's been reading the audiobook um, very marvellously. So, so, so what made you think of Africa? Where did that, where did that come from? Well, I read a news item on, um, on biopiracy mm. and the idea of um, taking things from you know, various African indigenous plants and stuff, um, industry taking those things and basically, you know, benefiting from them or uh, taking from Africa and not giving an awful lot back. Mm. And there's, there's huge legal wranglings going on, but there's mm. something like 36 cases of biopiracy mm. in Africa at the moment, with lawyers trying to get deals for the indigenous peoples and yeah. stuff in the area. Um, and the idea of biopiracy just struck me as an interesting thing that you can kind of extend from that and imagine you know, what would alien biopiracy be like, you know, maybe the thing. Yeah, so that's pretty good, really. You're using, you're using the format to tell us something about what's going on um, in the world today. I and, like and that, actually. Like that. I think that's rather good, that, that there is a serious side to it, really. And it's, I think it's, it's quite broadening for the Doctor and Rose that, as you know, they care about the planet, although they only visit it from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> they care that it's, 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 it's working. I, I, and I think that's really good. Yeah, it was, it was a nice thing to be able to do. And, uh, you know, it's, visually it's quite an interesting place to, to describe. You know, when you've got a huge volcano and um, you can see, you know, the lava tubes up inside there make these really kind of quite scary caves. I think Doctor Who works quite well in scary caves. Yes, um, yes. And they're quite fun to explore. Is it true about the mountain, the volcano? Is it there? Um, it... It's it's based on a real volcano. Um, I did uh, change the name uh, slightly, but there is uh, a, a real volcano in Chad. I think it's an extinct one now, but uh, I made it a dormant one for my purposes. You yeah. kind of like you take the reality and you tweak it slightly. Yeah. I think yeah. um, it's like you know, the the idea of um, people hiding art treasures away. You know that obviously mm. came from what we were doing in uh, the Second World War when mm. all the great British art treasures were taken away from the galleries and, and hidden in um, prisons or in underground shelters yeah. and stuff. Um, and again, you sort of extrapolate from that and you imagine, you know, alien races on a war would probably be, you know, if you had two planets fighting, they would probably be worried about their art treasures, but instead of hiding them under a mountain or whatever, they, could, they would have the option to take it to another planet altogether and yeah. hide stuff there. So, again, you take a kind of a real-life thing and put a science fiction twist on it. And, uh, it is nice, though, that, that um, you've got one side who, who express themselves absolutely through art and mm -hmm. beauty and all that. Then you've got these horrible, horrible monsters whose pleasure comes in, in, in destroying the, you know, mm. beautiful things. I think, I think Doctor Who monsters... Um, benefit from having that kind of you know, tensions that you, that you picked up on there, the idea of those that want to create and those that want to mm. destroy, rather than just then, you know, evil, ugly monsters. They're kind of monsters with an agenda that mm. kind of makes sense and, mm. and is more interesting to explore. Some people can look at a painting and see something beautiful in mm. it. Others will see only something ugly. Mm. And again, you just exaggerate that conflict into, 
into sort of like a complete destruction, really. Yes. There's a temptation as a writer is to make your monsters interesting and to give them, you know, lots of lots of shade and light, you know, so they're not just you know out and out baddies. But uh, I think children in particular enjoy that blackness of a villain, and they yes. enjoy the fact that a Dalek only wants to exterminate you, or that a Cyberman can't listen to reason; it only wants to assimilate you or delete you. You know, it, it it's not a very good conversationalist. It's not going to, um, you know be swayed by argument it just uh, it just wants to get you um as an actor if if you can see the baddie it makes things a whole lot easier because people can look at this monstrous shape this physical thing mm. and relate to it but when you come to play one on the radio or in this uh, form it's quite tricky because you have to create with your voice who the monster is now how do you do that well and especially as they're kind of from outer space, you know, it's not, it's not, yeah. um, so, so you have to, you have to think in an extraordinary way. And you look at the text and there are clues in the text, actually, that tell you. I mean, if you look at the worms, for instance, what, what is a worm? It's a slimy thing crawling along the ground. When I first looked at it, I thought, well, what sort of voice would a worm have? And I thought, um, a worm. And I got all kind of squelchy. <laughs> Like that, but I couldn't do that in the, in, the, in the recording. I don't know. So I just went for, I suppose I went for the size of it and the sort of, I don't know, gloopiness of it, you know, sort of, you know, huge voice so that you got the sense of this thing without legs, mm. a sort of flopping thing, which, which was fine. But And the other monster, I think you gave a very good clue. You said that um, he had lots of eyes and... Mm. Um, um, eyebrows and things and it just seemed to me that people who have or a monster who would have lots of eyes and would be shaped like a a, a, a toad with lots of arms and with lots hundreds of arms of and hundreds of legs would have a very high pitched voice really mm, yes I think um, he's, got, he's got quite delicate legs as felt yeah, so, yeah, yeah yes. yes but also he's he's quite he has a sensitivity, really, because he quite likes art, and he's very keen that people don't assume because he looks so um, unprepossessing that he doesn't have a taste for the finest things in life. So mm. he's developed this rather strange voice, <laughs> which informs them that he is a man of taste and charm. Mm, which is fantastic. Know, regardless of his looks. So, so in, I mean, so, you know... So you can use the voice in that way, which is, is certainly a challenge. It is, it is a lot of fun to do. Um, and, and it has it's, it's, its, its effect. You, know, you, can't, you can't resist it, really. It's, it's wonderful. And it's also innocent. There's no cynicism in Doctor Who, which mm -hmm. is wonderful. You know, that's very fresh. And I think that's why so many people like it, really. He's a good guy. You know, and the good guy wins all the time. And you know that he's indestructible. And that's a wonderfully um, um, warming feeling to sit there knowing that your hero won't really feel any pain at all. Which is nice. He has his moments, though, these days. Yeah, but you know that he will overcome it. I mean, he's being humanised in that way, which is good, because that means that people can identify more with mm. him. But it's the overall sense is that he will triumph over yes. whatever... Adversity comes. It's an optimistic universe. I yeah, think, and I think that's it. I think that's a wonderful thing. Really, I think that's great. It should be. Mm, definitely. That's why we watch television or listen to audiobooks. <laughs> <laughs>